cost model. Mm -hmm. It feels like sometimes everything we set up here, every project proposal we write, every EU project proposal we write there, they should they should succeed, right? You should have basically 100% success rate for all the projects and stuff like that, which means you set them up in a specific way, right? And it's not this, uh, let's try it out, fail, if, and then move on if, if it doesn't work, basically. Mm. So I don't know, perhaps it's a bit of a, bit of a European thing, actually. Don't yeah. they think it's more American? I'm not sure. But I'm not sure either. I'm not I sure either. I think Americans are even worse in failing fast, but I'm not sure. Silicon Valley is good Silicon at it. Silicon Valley is good at it. Yes. And that's probably the, you know, I only see Silicon Valley in Boston. So, <laughs> it's, you know, my view of the US is super yeah. skewed. But, but, but the POC thing, yeah. I have a hypothesis that it is to some degree a Swedish invention to go this far on the POC and demo. And, and I yeah. tell you that because I'm working in a consortium with several different niche experts that yeah. we together have a frame agreement with Scania. Yeah. And one of the companies are Italian. Right. And they're working on these topics, big data, data processing, uh, AI, yara, yara, yara. Mm. working with NL, you know, a big Italian utility as a, as, as a contrast, okay. right? Yeah. Yep. And then Alberto is like, in, in his cool Italian uh, voice, you know, I can't do it. Mm. Uh, what's with all the pox in Sweden? Right. So when yeah. he says that, it, yeah. I, I, I kind of pick up on that. that yeah. Is that a trend? Perhaps. I'm not sure. But perhaps we should start talking about rather about MVPs rather than POCs or something like that. Yeah. Just to put in context that, you know, it's something that at least should have a further life if we get somewhere. It's, you know, I don't know. Yeah. No, I'm not 100% sure about that either. Uh, I think uh, there is a value with POCs as well. Yeah. Uh, to show and that something is possible. And right? to be able to fail fast. Yeah. If you force everything to be MVP that actually yeah. is connected to the proper, you know, production system, yeah. it will be really slow. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think there needs but to I, be a But I, I think if you have a venture cap approach where you basically say everything we do has, you know, start capital, seeding capital, stage two capital, mm. like that, then basically the most important thing is that you consider things differently. I mean, you know, the AI model, as we know, yeah. the data scientist piece, Lala has this beautiful picture he loves to show. Yeah. We know Lala together. You know, the model is 10% of the, yeah, of the yeah, production yeah, yeah, yeah. problem, right? Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. It, so it, it, it forces you to look at the whole consideration, yeah. but but then, then you need to have the other steering that basically it's okay to fail. Because yeah. if, you, if, if you're really honest, in a traditional enterprise, you build and break careers on what works and doesn't work. Mm, so you're mm, not sort of mm. allowed to fail. So you, yeah. you need to build that all the way into the steering model. So I, I agree with you that you need to be able to experiment and poke and all that. But uh, I, I think the pain of not having considered the whole topic of going to production is worse, in my opinion. Um, so I prefer the MVP evolution, call it evolutionary MVP or something like that. Yeah. Like we Let's do something like lean startup, how fast can we try something as an hypothesis and then understand if we're going to kill it, pivot or improve yeah. it? Yeah. I think the, the three, three, three step like rocket that we had at least at Peltorion was, mm. you know, first you do like a, a POC, then you do a pilot and the pilot actually is connected to the production system and they can do a proper evaluation, evaluation of it, but not having it fully productionized because that's a lot of work to, yeah, to yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but is. then if it actually do pass the pilot stage, you do start working with the production version of it. But, uh, you know, 
so many people, I think, you know, underestimate the, the amount of work needed to actually properly integrate to, to a fully productionized system. Yeah. It's a huge amount of work. Yeah, yeah. And but let, let me f- throw a curveball on the POC, because I have seen a lot of POCs, which in my opinion is not commercial POCs. They are purely technical mm. POCs. But that's another so, thing. That, that's like yeah. wrong POCs. That's it's the not, wrong It's yeah. not a problem with the POC. It's a problem of how what kind of POC you, you choose to and develop, I, I, right? I think maybe yeah. the POC is not even a bad idea then, as long as it's there to prove a metric that is a business metric yes. right. versus just, uh, this. I could connect these two things so I could get machine learning to work. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I, mean, I agree. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> Awesome. Um, it's a pleasure and honor to have you here, Daniel Gilblad. Um, we know each other for some time, and um, I think you know. I think you're basically the go-to guy. I think for a lot of journalists, as soon as some AI you know problem comes up, <laughs> and, and I know you could be <laughs> one of the, the the top, I think, people in in Sweden when it comes to AI. So it's all, it's great to have you here on the season finale that we have for this podcast mm-hmm. uh, for this spring. Um, it's great to be here. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I mean, awesome. With that, uh, perhaps, Daniel, you can uh, just start to describe a bit briefly, you know, who, who are Daniel Gilblad and how would you describe your background? Right, yeah. I started out as a researcher really, really late 90s. I started doing my PhD and so on and work at the Swedish Institute of Computer Science with something I thought was incredibly cool at the time, but no one really was all that interested in, which, which was machine learning. Mm. And this is 99, I think, or 99 was the year where, you know, when I was a st- still a student, but I got hired at, it was called SIX, the Swedish Institute of Computer Science. And I so got hired at KTH. At that I was at KTH yes. at that time. But there, there was this, there was um, Anders Lansner, a professor at KTH, was both at SIX and at KTH. And he sort of brought me in and he put me at SIX. Yeah. And there I stayed for quite some time, even though I have been <laughs> part-time at KTH, I've been working for some companies and so on through different kinds of contracts and stuff like that. But I, I was with SIX for 20 years. That's impressive for yeah. sure. Uh, is six now part of Rice? So how does six it, is part of Rice? This is part of Rice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But can you find six inside Rice? Or has it not, been no not, not, Now not Rice is a new animal. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It, it was sort of reorganized the last couple of years. And uh, uh, what used to be Swedish Institute of Computer Science is sort of intact, but it's in several different departments, uh, basically. And stuff was moved around a little bit and so on, which is... Um, which is partly good because it had grown organically for a long time and perhaps it was uh, time to do a little bit of restructuring, but uh, uh, also a little bit uh, in some senses sad because one of the cool things about SIX was that within computer science and AI and so on, it wasn't that big, but you had people from you had people from expert systems, from logic, from uh, compilers, from the complex systems, thing. from uh, constraint programming, optimization, integer programming. You always had someone to ask, right, about <laughs> the most esoteric kind of questions that you had. That's a cool place. It was very cool, yeah. It was great. It was super cool. Yeah. And it stood for the Swedish Institute of Computer, Computer Science. Science at that yeah. time. yeah. But and later it was, was it Rise AI? Was that basically? Yeah, that, that was sort of what it merged into, what yeah. I led for yes. some time then. Yeah. But and, and for people, there are some almost household topics, uh, not household topics, that SIX was focused on and working on. I, uh, yeah, there were a few things that so used SIX to, was used more, to put the position what yeah. SIX was doing. So, so SIX was, I mean, but you have to put... Uh, 
I started out in the neural networks and robust computation laboratory, but uh, we in 99 was it the neural 99. network? It was still the neural network. That's uh, impressive. That's isn't impressive. it? Isn't it? Uh, That's but a, then, uh, winter right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> we soon realized that no one cared about neural networks, so <laughs> we had to switch our name. <laughs> <laughs> and became something like, what was it? Adaptive robust computation or something like that. Oh, something, yeah, yeah, whatever. Now it would have been crash out. Yeah, it's, yeah. But, but uh, yeah, no one really cared in the beginning of the 2000s that much about yeah. neural networks, right? Yeah. It no, wasn't really a big thing. Course, no, absolutely not. It's, you know, but we, yeah, we still did backprop and then we moved on to what everyone else also moved into a little bit. I mean, statistical machine learning and graphical models and mixture models and support vector machines and all that kind of stuff, basically. But, yeah. And you started your PhD as well at yeah, that time, at right? Yeah, at yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did it in more statistical machine learning, actually. Mm. If you were to try to describe your PhD topic in an um, understandable way, yeah. how, how would you describe it? To uh, create a framework for, for structurally learning combinations of mixtures and graphs, basically. Oh. And, of course, you can do that in many ways. You can, you know, you can put up a graph and you can... Uh, you can uh, you can uh, put in an unobserved variable that sort of creates the same thing. But uh, our goal was a little bit to create some kind of combination of first having mixtures or the other way around and then having a graph and then having a mixture and so on so that you could actually build these basically some product structures of probabilities, mm. different ways of factorizing things. And where, where, where are the typical use cases where, where this is of value these, to solve these type of problems? I mean, by that time, we weren't all that great in putting together really, really large-scale models. So it's really different today, basically. But for any kind of uh, uh, statistical inference and so on, so what you, what you could do a little bit better was, of course, to encode... Um, some kind of knowledge and so on into these systems. So, and, and that was actually one of the things that we spent quite a lot of time on. We were, I mean, this was quite a long time ago, but we were tasked with by the Swedish Defense Agency to to build. We had a project to build uh, a general diagnostic tool for people out in the field that should be used for. Uh, tanks and perhaps people and I don't know uh, anything that you in the field need conscripts to find out what's the problem basically so that you don't have you know super experts out in the field and you can't find really the train root them. course analysis yeah that yeah. kind of thing and yeah. what, what's wrong with my tank or what's wrong with this person or something like that and we quickly realized that, yeah, we should do this with neural networks, we should do this with graphical models, we should learn everything from data, and then we realized they ha have absolutely no data points for some diseases and for some faults and stuff like that. So you needed to start to encode some kind of knowledge into this kind of system, basically. So it's so more rule-based, the process. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. So we sort of did it in a Bayesian way, sort of. We did, ah, you did Bayesian. Yeah. So basically we sort of structured everything into... Um, into like we created something that we called yeah prototypes so you know distilled knowledge this is a typical expression of a disease or a fault mm -hmm. uh, that experts can set up and then you then you use that in essentially in a model as a prior for the data that you're looking at and then you calculate a posterior that you use to guide people through the uh, diagnostic process and stuff like that and um 
we, we use the word now uh, statistical machine learning. Yeah. Um, help me out who is not on the same level as you guys. What do we mean with statistical machine learning and how can we categorize that towards, you know, deep learning or whatever? Well, what is it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, in, in a sense, everything is statistics anyway, right? So, but it's uh, a <laughs> damn lies. <laughs> yeah, but but more about uh, models that uh, that express some kind of distribution over data, and that you then can, for example, uh, calculate. Um, conditional probabilities or something like that. And given that we know these things, what is the probability distribution over another variable that is part of this mm. uh, whole data set? Um, what is the probability distribution? And then we can make decision and classification predictions and stuff like mm. that based on that. So it's a, uh, you know. Would you call it like a sub area? Like, is this a clear sub area within machine learning, like statistical machine learning? Or how, how do you frame it? I think so. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a big difference to new. I'm not sure if you mean Bayesian neural networks or proper Bayesian networks. Proper Bayesian networks. We were okay. actually doing proper Bayesian networks. <laughs> because that's, um, you know, so many people today is so focused on deep learning and neural yes. networks. So when we say Bayesian networks, I think, yeah. you know, Bayesian neural networks, yes. which yes. is, you know, yeah. very different. So, so yes. traditional Bayesian neural, <laughs> Bayesian networks, not yeah. Bayesian neural networks, they actually use proper probability theory to calculate everything and, it, yep. you know, conditional probability tables that they have. Yeah everything and there is no parameters that you try to tune with backprop in any way but no. today is everything is backprop and, and neural networks that you but this yeah. is the evolution yeah. right we get more data more cream more power more 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 knowledgeable about the deep learning ways yeah. so th so the methods change uh, yeah yeah and, and it's not like it's not like this um, more let's call them statistically stringent stuff is not useful. It's useful for, di for, for different purposes, right? Yes. If you want to, for example, encode some kinds of knowledge and stuff like that, they might be more useful. If you want to work with, let's call it uncertainties in a very deliberate and uh, manageable ways, they're, they're, they're super useful, basically. And we were talking just before here about this uh, uh, corona case and calculating uh, spread of disease and stuff like that. So that very quickly becomes this kind of problem, basically. So if you've, if you've met a person with a certain probability of having COVID-19 during a certain stage, then you have a conditional probability of having it yourself. And then you have this large graph of people with connections with, between people who have met, and you need to propagate these probabilities, basically, to find out what is the marginal probability number? So yeah. the, back to the core topic of uh, tools fit for the purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And this goes really much into machine learning and what type mm -hmm. of data. And, and uh, I basically did the PhD at the same time as you mm -hmm. did. And I actually did also work with proper Bayesian networks yeah. quite a lot. And I yeah. was really, you know, infatuated with them because yeah. it's so beautiful from a mathematical point of view, they I are. think. They are. They can't really scale. That's no. a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> but they're beautiful. They're very nice. They're super nice. <laughs> I wish I could follow you down in this uh, yeah. journey of beautiful algorithms. I'm not really there yet. I'm yeah. trying. Yeah. But I mean, mid 2000s, things started to change, right? Yeah. Uh, more traditional neural networks and stuff like that really started gaining attention. Again. And, so and, and yeah. what, why, why, why the shift or why the evolution? Was it, can you pinpoint it? Was it more I mean, power? Think, yeah. Okay. You can 
shouldn't say. Yeah, it was, it was a few different things, right? I think it's difficult to pinpoint. I mean, we can always simplify and say that it, it was, like we always say, when we go out and speak, we say access to more data, access uh, to uh, exactly. computational That's power easy. and stuff like that. But it was also a little bit of a movement, right? It, it, the timing was just right to start mm. to look into building deeper neural network structures. It, yeah. it, 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 the timing was sort of right. And it's also a combination of all kinds of things. I mean, data, yeah. Um, benchmarks were super important, right? Yeah. To have these benchmarks that you could actually but work. It, but I think but the it, Alex that was still a big jump. Yeah. But it was yes. a gradual change, right? It you was, know, it was. Stuff that happened that built up together to yeah. a big change. Yeah. It took a few years there, basically. Yes. When, when you say when you say that the the first workshop of deep learning was at NIPS in two thousand six or something like that, mm. right? Yeah. It's quite a long time ago. But but has it something to do with when something gets the attention? I mean, like uh, we can say, talk about the hype cycle or whatever, but yeah. all of a sudden, like big brains are starting to shift their attention to something else or slightly, you know, deep yeah. in neural networks, for, uh, for instance. And then, of course, the data and all that is important and the power of the computers. Yeah. But isn't it the brain power is shifting their attention and focus into something and then stuff happen? Yeah. I mean, in yeah. a sense, I think that's but definitely also, part of it. Yeah. It's also the... the power of it. I mean, Alexet could like improve it like 30 percentage point or something yeah, on the yeah. internet. Yeah. And, and then all, all the <laughs> traditional approaches in machine learning was basically like, thrown out, you know. So after mm-hmm. that point, and this kind of really big, like, uh, what do you call it? Like step change yeah. Yeah. in performance that you suddenly got. Yeah. And, that, that, and yeah. wasn't that pretty important, right? Just the publicity of that yeah. big step change. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that changed a lot. It's like flies, flies to honey, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But ImageNet itself was pretty important. Otherwise, yeah. it would True. have been difficult to even try out these things yeah. and so find, find so, a good so use. So there are several things. It's the power of the computers. It's... A, a interesting demo, you know, showcase the AlexNet. I mean, it, did you use data set that, that ImageNet was, you know, if they hadn't yeah. spent all these millions of dollars to produce that. Exactly. It, it became a showcase. This. It wouldn't right? have happened, at yeah. least not as soon as it that did. That accelerated. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. that showcase accelerated the whole movement. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And access to that kind of problem and benchmark and data yeah. that you mm. could actually test this on. Yeah. yeah. It made a huge difference, I think. So many, many factors that is an interplay in order to get the whole movement to accelerate. That's an interesting... I think so. And it, it wasn't like... How can we re- replicate that? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like people hadn't been thinking about building deeper neural network structures, right? Mm-hmm. The whole thing about let's just go to one hidden layer because it can represent everything, that was always a little bit of a cop-out, right? It's, mm-hmm. you know, we can't we, we can't get anything else to converge anyway, so let's mm-hmm. just say that, that that's, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> At least sometimes it felt like that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah it, sure. did, it did change. Yeah. But let's get back a bit to your background as well. Yeah. So you did your PhD, and, and let my ask, uh, let me ask you the, the, the stupid question, mm. uh, which I know the answer to before because I can uh, think the same. But yeah. uh, after your PhD, do you ever feel that you had direct use for the work you did at that time nah. later? Nah, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the, I mean, the tools that we built and the knowledge and so on. Yeah, yes, you can exactly. pick from it. But but that's I think yeah. that's also a good lesson, right? I mean, AI is qu- quite a big toolbox. Yeah. If you learn a lot, I, mean, I think doing a PhD. I mean, it's more about you know you learn to become a scientist yeah. more th- than you actually learn a specific skill in some small area which you usually focus on. Exactly. It's like a math professor once told me one. Um, you know, 
you don't learn math because you have used for it. You learn math because you want to show that you can do it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that process, you know, you become like a certified scientist in some yeah. way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's more that. Exactly. But it's, and it's also, uh, uh, I got a very good advice uh, um, during my PhD studies. Basically, someone said, um, a PhD being done. No, uh, a PhD is something that you uh, that you feel like you've moved on from, basically, mm. and then you're done. <laughs> it, it's not it, you know. a good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. And then I realized, oh, perhaps I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I need to confess, I have this uh, starting to get an itch very late. I would be, I'm, I'm so impressed. I'm, I'm, I'm starstruck with all your PhDs. Mm. So I'm thinking about from my end of you know how, can can that be done in, of later course, in life? Yeah, of course, a profession. Can you combine it? Yes. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm t- talking from a very personal level now that I'm, I'm I've been toying you, you with these You have to spend ideas. a lot of time for like five years or spread it spread it out. You know, if you do it like part time, it will take a lot of time. But, yeah. And this is my this is the core problem, right? So how do I combine it with the professional life? Yeah, is it doable? Oh, I think that's tough, and it, it's also Th- then you can be like a, a what, what do you call it? Uh, Lossas professor. <laughs> Bill Gates is the professor of everything. You know, yeah, but, uh, yeah. he's more an honorary, or, honorary or yeah. adjunct or whatever. Yeah, but I, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I, I can't <laughs> give any good advice here. I no, don't know what you, you think, Anish, but it's you know, uh, I think uh, if you have the interest and you can make it work, absolutely. But it but might also just work. yeah, and it might just end up a really serious guilty conscience. You know, <laughs> always feeling when you have free time, I should have worked on. Do you know? What and I, mean? I have that with my family already. Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> so you, uh, yeah. And if you just want to make money, you should not do a PhD. No, <laughs> there, there are better ways so to make money. Ego thing doing that. <laughs> yeah, but if you, have, if you have other interests, you really want to develop your skills, etc., then it could be a good idea. Yeah, I think yeah. So. absolutely. Yeah. Cool. And um, the thing is, you worked so long then in six, but yeah. but that means that you you started at six when you did the PhD, right? Before I did my PhD. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually hired before I did my PhD. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's, okay. it was quite some time. <laughs> cool. Uh, and can you just describe a bit the 20 years at six? You know, What did you start with? How did it evolve? What were the steps? Yeah. So we started with um, a little bit neural networks and that kind of machine learning quickly morphed into these kind of more statistical models that we talked about now and so on. And then also super quickly into whatever kinds of applications that we can put these things to use in basically, because and it was driven both by the fact that, um, of course, we are a research institute, we should actually try to see, you know, how can we get this out into industry and so on. But also the fact that, I mean, when you apply for funding, yeah, at least when you were applying for funding and so on, it you didn't really have a lot of open calls for things that fit AI and machine learning and stuff like that perfectly. You had to fit them into, you know, something else, right? right. So, you know, uh, we were working for a very long time with uh, machine learning for network management and that kind of stuff together with Ericsson and then to, into cloud management and diagnostics for cars, for trucks at Scania, for, you know, all these kinds of things, basically. But so machine learning research 
in applied to a product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that's nice. that's where the funding actually was, basically. It was in these applications of these things, basically, to a very large degree. Do you think that's a good or bad thing, that funding that goes like to a more <laughs> applied area of AI? Or, I mean, uh, I guess there is yeah. a need for both, like basic research and applied, right? Or there is. But, but, I mean, in a sense, it's not... In the very general sense, it's not too bad, I think, because, uh, I mean, uh, machine learning is, I mean, of course, you can prove some um, basic bounds and stuff like that of algorithms and convergence proofs and stuff like that. But at the, at the end of the day, we want to use it to build something, right? It's empirical at the end of the day. We want to try it on a problem and see if it actually works in practice on a yes. real data set on a real problem, right? So, of course, it needs to be applied mm-hmm. somewhere right yeah. it's uh, but, yeah. I, but i get your your angle and, and my father is a doctor and yeah. he always pushes hard he uh, both medical doctor and phd it's like we need basic research you know he was yeah. that physiologian in, in in gothenburg yeah because this whole thing that real innovation sometimes needs to be bigger or needs to look at things that is 30 years ahead yeah yeah but but there's also yeah uh, and but you can also divide it a little bit on, uh, uh, I guess, time scales and what yeah. it's driven by. Is, if, is it solely driven by business interest or is it driven by curiosity? Mm-hmm. It can still be applied and non-applied, and you know. Yes. Uh, and uh, also, should we expect results within a year or two, or should yeah. we expect year within five years and so on? I mean, uh, I think you can work with both applied stuff and basic stuff on actually several different timescales, even though basic research, of course, takes longer time to maturity and stuff like that. So I guess there are a few different uh, perspectives. But I think that's, that's the right answer, because we even talked about that from a, from how you build products last yeah. week, that yeah. we we need our time horizons, yeah. short-term, mid-term, long-term. I mean, like we, right. we, we concluded three time horizons is probably needed. Yeah. And then, you know, let's call it basic research. Actually, it's just about the third time horizon. Maybe that's the point. To some degree in machine learning and AI, yeah, perhaps, at least to some degree, yeah. And let me break off, you know, what I said, you know, we shouldn't do, but but <laughs> do another topic. But <laughs> I just want to have a quick answer to this. Not, yeah. Let's not dive too deeply. I love this. when you are <laughs> screwing up and not me. <laughs> <laughs> but since you're speaking about this, so, so yeah. research can be done in a basic or more applied yeah, manner. Yeah. And then you have results that you want to be able to see potentially in the short term or long mm-hmm. term. And then you have research being done in industry or you have research being done in academia. Yeah. And I struggle a lot at Spotify, at least, to have a proper research team there. And mm. we fun- finally got it. But it, it's sometimes really hard to move from just a few like uh, months of horizon to like years or even five years is possible, more yeah. or less. Yeah. Do you think that, you know, research in the future should be done mainly in academia or should it be done more in industry or what should the balance there between the oh i think it definitely i mean this this is pretty difficult right because of course it needs to be done in academia Mm. of course it needs to be done in industry i mean i i think in sweden it should be even done more in in industry than it's done today basically but you know if you go to if you go to conferences and stuff like that nowadays there's a lot of Google there. Yes. yes. So, uh, so, so what's the balance, you know? Google, Microsoft, Facebook. Exactly. But it's Tencent, interesting. Yeah. It's, it's the real, now we're back into the AI device. Some people have figured this out, that in order to stay ahead of the game, yeah. they and they are so far ahead of the game, yeah. 
they are actually doing the basic research for us as well. Yes, they are. And but, they're but sort of driving the agenda. Yeah, so, but, but it's open AI and DeepMind. I mean, they uh, are doing basic research. Uh, fantastic stuff, yeah, right? But, it's, but it sort of indicates that if you want to catch up in the game, the normal companies needs to do basic, you know, needs to get into a, an R&D uh, topic. I think that's yeah. that, to, to balance this out. In a sense, so but I, it's, it's not super easy to, to, to be... Uh, a more traditional company, perhaps, and then just switch to being a Google or uh, a Facebook or Baidu or uh, OpenAI or something like that. It's not super easy. But perhaps you don't need to go that long. I mean, you don't have to build another deep mind like 100%, no. but at least increase the horizon that we spoke of, you know. Yeah. But, but I, I've been to two companies now where actually R&D is an ingrained part of those, those companies. Vattenfall has a very uh, mm-hmm. uh, solid okay. R&D yep. uh, area yeah. and so does Konya. Yeah. So R&D is very closely connected to, of course, now the truck uh, development. And I think that is something that makes them successful. Ericsson. Yes, yes absolutely. Ericsson is hardcore R&D. AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca, right? Very hardcore R&D. But sometimes, you know, it's hard. If you take Microsoft as an example, I mean, they have an awesome, I think, research department. Mm-hmm. And then I think they are getting better in product as well. But traditionally, at least, I think they had a really hard time converting the research ah. into a product. Yes, super difficult, I think. Ah. Yes. I think they were really far apart from each other, basically, yeah. the product department and the research. At least it felt like it. Yes, yeah. I think so too. But yeah. not in Ericsson. I, or yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, don't uh, they do a lot of like, pa- no, I shouldn't say that. But, yeah. but I mean, in some way. I have some can... insight, and even yeah. Scania have some insight. And yeah. I think. Ericsson talked about the PLC and process, yeah. the whole process, right? And I, I've been I've been certifying product managers in Ericsson in mm, previous mm, lives. Mm. And then where is R and D fitting into the use, you know, the life cycle from, right. from innovation to end of life of the radio base station, as an example. Yeah. Four G, five G and all that. Six G. Mm. Yeah, 6G is coming up, I guess. So, it yeah. is. They're working on it. In Finland, they already have it, they say. But oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, they, they started a long time ago saying they're working on 6G. Saying they're yeah. working with it, yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, let's get back on track a bit yeah. here. Yeah. And um, yeah, the, the research in industry, uh, if mm. I were to summarize what you said, I think we, we need to at least step up a bit there and, and try to have Swedish companies do a bit more research, right? Yeah, I, I think that would be a very, very good complement right now to the to what we have, basically, and to have a little bit more open doors between academia and industry and so on, and get mm. a little bit more movement. I mean, it's 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 there to some degree, right? But not... Not quite as it should be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I would really like to have a Swedish deep mind, right? Yeah. It would be yeah, super cool. So cool, super cool. But uh, or an edition, right? Yeah, Swedish deep mind. But um, yeah, it, it's not easy to get that. So, mm. yeah. but but then you need to. I mean, like that's now we need to park the topic. But that's like super interesting topic to p- pick apart ingredients mm. to make that work. Yeah, because I think you can, to some degree, you can distill what this deep mind construct all about. Right? What do they yeah. do? We're like that's an interesting topic, but let's park it. Yeah, yeah. but you know, Paltorium has a Swedish deep mind, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> Boom! <laughs> I love it. Uh, let's move back a bit. Okay, so you worked uh, twenty years in yeah. and six, and um, can you just describe a bit? You did your PhD there as yeah. well. And yeah, I was part time at KTHS yeah. as well during yeah. okay. during some yeah quite a few years basically, mm-hmm. but then I was. Uh, back at six again, and um, also doing not only leading the. I, t- I took um, 
I created, took over and created a research lab in the mm-hmm. 2010s, somewhere beginning there. Um, that I managed for quite some time and then uh, did a few other things on the side. Worked a little bit for companies, both with strategy and, uh, okay. and did product development and stuff like that. Uh, and that was super fun because it, it gives you a little bit of grounding, right? It gives yeah. you, you know, um, where does all the stuff that we do actually put in, uh, wh- where does it work in context, for both on a strategic level and, you know, how does it actually work to put these things out uh, into real use? And that was super fun. And uh, then these last few years, I started gliding over more and more towards, you know, trying to build a few initiatives in Sweden. And I started working more and more with AI Sweden uh, a couple of uh, a couple of last years. And then, uh, yeah, since January, I'm 100% at AI Sweden, basically. Well, let's, uh, okay, let's go to AI Sweden <coughs> very shortly. Yeah. But um, I think we, we mentioned RISE a number of times and SIX a number of times, but we really didn't really describe, you know, what RISE is. Yeah. Could you just try to describe, you know, what is RISE and how many people are there? What oh, do they do? Yeah. And it's, like very, it's very big now. It's, uh, uh, my guess is because it's been fluctuating around because there were some acquisitions and stuff like that between 2000 something and almost 3000 people. Mm. And I couldn't tell you what the actual number is right now, but it's, it's pretty big. It's, uh, it's quite a lot of people, but it's a lot of different institutes. It's not uh, just, uh, so there were a few institutes uh, called uh, Swedish Institute of Computer Science, um, uh, Victoria Institute, and uh, Interactive Institute, and so on, and all of these were sort of in the similar area. But now there is a, it's a lot broader. SPS, Staten Spruning, Sandstall, and all of that. I was going to say that as the old man, you know, to show yeah. the breath, Staten yeah. Spruning, Sandstall is part of RISE. Part of RISE, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's a huge part of RISE, yeah. actually. It's very, very big. So six was all of a sudden a very small part of it. And it's, you know, we were 100 people, perhaps 200 people closer to when it, it started to become integrated and so on. And so not, not a very big part. And spread out all over Sweden, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All over Sweden. Have. All over Sweden. Can you, what's the mission with rice or vision of rice? Do you know it? Uh, I, I shouldn't be the one speaking <laughs> on this right now. <laughs> oh, we can skip it. It's fine. <laughs> but but but, uh, um, but but I I, I guess. Uh, uh, we can talk about what what which should we should we think a research institute should be for Sweden, yep. right? Okay. And it's like, uh, uh, and I think uh, Rice is is there and still has some part, uh, some work to do in in some areas. But of course, it, it it needs to be a platform. This platform between academia and industry, I, I really think there's a room there basically yep. for people who, uh, not necessarily. That can be at least part-time, let's say, academics. But instead of having education as your other part, you have, well, let's build something that works. Let's push it out into industry. Let's build software, whatever it might be, basically. I think there's, a, I think there's quite but a big room for that. I, I'm not sure what the future is and, and all that, but I truly believe that the position is there for RISE yep. even to take more than they do today. I mean, Possibly. like we, we have we have other initiatives coming up when we're starting different initiatives. Mm-hmm. AI Sweden is another example. I, yeah. I think to some degree, Rice is potentially very well positioned to do, you know, to be the deep mind. I'm just putting it out there. Could it be, you know, could you organize? I mean, like if you if you rethink the purpose of Rice, 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm used to I going crazy. Maybe not, maybe. I, I, I think with something like DeepMind and stuff like that, I, I, I'm a very big proponent on actually starting. If, if, if you're going to build something like that, let, let's build something new. Let, let's not get stuck into, you Okay, know, so then, then you rather uh, do it on the side. And stuff like that. So not yeah. in the old structures. Yeah. Good yeah. point, good point. I mean, yeah. DeepMind is very long-term for sure. It is. It's it, like it ATI is. and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's, so, uh, yeah. Uh, but, but if you're going to set something very different up, then... I would say actually, well, we we could rethink that. Basically, we don't have to f- necessarily uh, the first thought having to be let's see what kind of structure we can fit this into. Basically, okay. let's That's let's try. Fair let, point. Fair point. Uh, let's just think about what it actually should do, and then mm-hmm. then let's take it from there. Basically, cool. But now yeah. you're working 100% for AI Sweden. I am. Yeah, and um, and that's an awesome initiative. Can can you just Describe for people, you know, what is AI Sweden and perhaps how they got started and what they they do. Yeah, so it, it was basically something that came out of Näringsdepartementet, uh, uh, like it's almost three years ago now, right? Isn't it? It's, it's something like that at least. 2019 or 18? 18, I think the decision came okay. that we should do something around collecting AI and applied AI in Sweden. And this is the one Harvard that we had on, on the show as well. Yes. I think yeah. that was part of yeah. the one was yeah. here. Yeah. yeah. And then it really got started in 2019. That's re- really when activities started to really, really spin up. So just up, to basically. clarify, we had John Harvard on this show and he was one of the on, in Nanix department that when we, yeah. this was starting to cook, be, be yeah. cooked up. Yeah. And also with the... Uh, is it called infrastructure? And w- before it was digitalisering, I think. So yeah. ne- never mind the political structures, but but there were some proponents there for doing something in Sweden, basically. And AI Sweden is the outcome of that. So, yeah. So there is government funding. It goes through this uh, government agency that is called Binova, because that's a very clean way of doing it. And uh, yeah, has long-term, you know, uh, ambitions. But I think... It's actually quite kind of fun to work now within within AI Sweden because we have the mission to accelerate the use of, of course, useful AI in Sweden, uh, whatever means necessary, basically. Uh, so um, I've worked in several research centers and research institutes and stuff like that before, where you have a mission basically to say, let's do as much research for for the money as we can. Let's get as much education out as we can. We can take a little bit of a step back and say that, I mean, is education the most important part? Okay, let's do education. Mm. If it's research, research it is. If it's applied research, then that's it. Is it sharing data and bringing out models? Okay, let's do that. So we have a relatively broad mission, so to speak, and we don't have this um, 100% connection to the means. And that's kind of nice, actually. It gives us a little bit of freedom. So let's flip it. Oh, like yeah. the higher mission is to accelerate AI, yeah. useful AI in Sweden. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm adding this useful AI because I got the question because accelerating AI in Sweden, you know, you, you can do that by just building nonsense, right? But it's, you know. <laughs> GPT-3. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we, should, uh, we invest in GPT-3 and go nuts. Yeah, yeah. That, no, but, that, but that I had my, my sharp question is actually, so what's what are the fundamental goals and metrics con- that you connect to that mission? That's super difficult to set up, actually. And this is something that all of these kind of long-term projects, uh, I wouldn't say struggle with because we're pretty good at setting them up. Mm-hmm. But um, it's sometimes they have to be more, 
qualitative than quantitative, so to speak, at least yeah. in the in the short term. Because uh, if our mission is to make sure that Sweden has uh, uh, is more attractive to people within AI, how do you cut out that part? What what we can contribute with, basically, we're part of a much larger system and things like that. So, so it's difficult to measure, of course. Yeah, I get that. If I flip the question, I, yeah. I, this is going to be on a mission. You're going to feel interrogated now. I, I apologize. <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm used no. to that. <laughs> <laughs> so if you flip it. At least as long as it's long enough uh, in yeah, the, the, role, the new role that you will have soon, <laughs> then I'm fine. Okay. We'll try not to do that. But I, yeah. I was thinking more because I think this is so valid. I think it's so yeah. right. And, and I think the fundamental mission, we need to accelerate AI, yeah. Yeah. is great. Then we can debate for a long time what are the five or ten top mm-hmm. topics that will accelerate the agenda. Yeah. And yeah. I and I is what I see, you know, maybe we're doing some things, but I'm yeah. like that is a, a, a lower order priority than many other things, you know. So that to me is interesting how to shape what is the top five. Yeah. And, and that's I mean that's that's on me and my co-director Martin and so on. This kind of funding that we have now, how do we invest yes. this properly? That, that's really that's that's really on us. It's uh, um, we're working furiously to get everything out there, and it's a little bit, which is also quite a bit fun because the more we try out things, the more we learn and we see what works and what doesn't work and so on. And by working with some of the government agencies and companies and stuff like that we can also get a feel for okay they don't know that they can that they need these things yet but they're gonna need it so let, let's try to prepare and be there when they actually get there basically this is a timing topic right so yeah. right now the top five things is this in two years it could be something else it could be something else yeah yeah, yeah. but but I, i'm not i'm not at all against working some on stuff that's strategic on a longer yeah. term, so to speak. It's, you know, um, uh, would I would I like to be, for example, uh, Sweden to be the center of attention within edge AI and decentralized AI and federated learning and stuff like that? Yeah, with actors like Ericsson and uh, our industry makes and sense. stuff like that, it sort of makes sense, right? I would l- love to work for that, and, but that's not a two-year mission, that's a longer-term mission, basically. So, so yeah, the timelines vary, but it's, uh, yeah. But I remember the initial planning that, that we had in AI Sweden and, yeah. and they had this kind of um, effect logique. Yes. <laughs> it's like a methodology to try to do the planning in yeah. different ways and try yeah. to have both qualitative and quantitative measures yeah. in short and long term. Is that still in use or is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still there in the background. It it's is. still there in the oh. background. Although that changes slower than we change our <laughs> direction. Yeah, yeah. So so hopefully <laughs> hopefully we can match and merge this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I must say, I was impressed, you know, how we tried to really find good measurable, you know, um, hard quantities, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how we can see that we, we do what the mission says we should do, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. But of course it's super hard and you need to be qualitative in, in some areas. Yeah, yeah. It's no other way, I guess. Exactly. But, but of course, of course, we, we want to deliver the best results we can, basically. It's not, uh, it's not a huge amount of basic resources, so to speak, but I think we've come up with a philosophy that sort of works, that is more of this, let's invest together when we can and share it than to everyone. And uh, that actually works 
I mean, even better than I expected to to start with. Actually, it's uh, and uh, perhaps you should just speak about you know the the progress of of AI Sweden because it's grown so much in just a few years, like two years. Yeah, so in in terms of number of companies and regions and everything. Yeah. So can, so can you give some kind of sure? I, I mean, just just um, just um, for example. So I'm I'm pretty surprised myself when we look back, basically, yeah. because we started working on this. Yeah, two, two, two and a half years ago yeah. or something like that in all of these meetings and stuff like that felt very small. Mm. And uh, so 2019, perhaps it was around 20 companies or something like that that had signed up and so on. Uh, one year later, we were around 60 something partners. Now we're close to 110. Mm. So it's it's expanding relatively quickly, and it's you know, it's not just a network, right? It's not that that you just sign up to mailing list or anything like that. I mean, you sign up to actually contribute with your own time, with financial resources, and things like that. And hopefully, uh, like Piltarian, you get something back. Yeah. But uh, yeah. And, and look, let me ask this super hard question then. Yeah. What's the USP, the unique selling point for companies to join AI Sweden? Why should any company become a partner in AI Sweden? Because you can't do it yourself in Sweden. That's that's basically it. It's you nailed it in a single, you know, few words. Uh, that's <laughs> annoying. <laughs> okay, so what can't you do yourself? Yeah, uh, you can't attract all the talent you need. You can't attract all the resources you need, all the knowledge, the know-how, the models, the data. You can't get to all of it necessarily. Some very, very big companies can stand very much on their own, um, like Ericsson, like AstraZeneca and so on. But they still need this connection to the larger ecosystem for talent, for other input, for you know, surprising collaborations and stuff like that. Because it's, you know... With, what we see now, it's a lot of the stuff that's been done for, for example, um, public healthcare and so on, comes a little bit from the from the uh, automotive side and uh, compu- computer vision people that have worked on self-driving cars and stuff like that. And we so need techniques this. from one in sector can be useful in another sector. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and. Uh, and and that's a super difficult thing to do because uh, it's something that we struggle with a lot basically because in, when you're setting up these uh, centers and stuff like that in many in many countries you you tend to do oh we're going to do this and this and this part of uh, AI we're going to do uh, we're going to do um, uh, neural architecture search and explainable AI or something that I know that you're working on <laughs> I, I chose a couple of topics that I thought you would like. <laughs> Uh, and then we do, and then we do healthcare and automotive and so on and so on in separate different silos. We couldn't really get that to work because there weren't enough people in each different silo to work with and not enough expertise in every different area of AI. So we've tried to sort of flip it around, trying to start working with a number of strategic programs and initiatives and stuff like that, that, you know, at least a few more from cross-sector and so on can join in and try to build something together and so on. And I think some of these things are starting to happen. I mean, right now, during the spring, just the super, super quick build of the Edge Lab, which is part of this um, program for edge learning and decentralized AI and so on, all of a sudden we have equipment for 20, 30, 40 million that everyone, everyone, at least partners can use and try out, right? Uh, 
that's pretty nice and that people actually just put in the effort. It's really, really cool. And, and if we phrase it in another way, perhaps, you know, we are a rather small country in Sweden. We don't mm. have, you know, super huge budget from the government. We, we don't have uh, super big campus. We have surprisingly good, I think, examples of unicorns that we built in Sweden. Yeah. And we yeah. have some really strong really. other companies like Ikea or Ericsson yeah. or et cetera. Yeah. So we are surprisingly good still in Sweden, right? Yeah, Compared I, th- to a lot of other I think so. I yeah. think so. In a sense, yeah. And I, I, I don't know if this is true, but I do get the feeling that we have quite a lot of quite different industries that are mm. relatively mature and could really be a player. I mean, yeah. we have uh, we have uh, fashion and retail and Ikea right. and H&M and we have uh, Volvo and Scania and Volvo trucks and all of these, uh, you know, automotive transport. We have lots of... Um, production and mining and all of that stuff and everything is relatively sophisticated, right? Yes. So, yeah. I, I mean, in a sense, it's like a colleague of mine, Mats, used to say, we're we're a superpower in yeah. uh, being the place where we have lots of different areas, lots of different resources. Yeah, so, so shout out to Mats Nordlund. Yeah. He, he usually speaks about how awesome Sweden is. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. phrase it really well. I yeah, think. yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and I know, I mean, he really doesn't want me to say that Sweden is a small country because no. that would annoy him. <laughs> exactly. So I'm trying to avoid the <laughs> saying that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's really true. But still, yeah. we have a problem of fragmentation in some way. Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So for one, companies themselves try to solve it themselves and it's yeah. super hard. We have a large number of initiatives happening, both yeah. from government, but also from other like research institute and WASP yeah. and yeah. whatnot, yeah. and Binova certainly, and so many other things. Yeah, and definitely. If we, I mean, some people say that Sweden is really good in collaboration and I think potentially we have been, but yeah. we need something. We need something and we need, and we need something more. We need to, I mean... Uh, we're getting there. I think we're tying up a lot of loose ends now. Uh, at least I feel like we're in a better place within the AI sphere than the, a couple of years ago, at least, in, uh, uh, which feels uh, which feels pretty great. But uh, sometimes also, and this is just a nagging feeling I have, that we're good at talking about uh, mm-hmm. that we're collaborating. And we're good at, good at sitting in meetings and talking about that we're collaborating. And yes. by sitting in these meetings, we have collaborated. <laughs> what what have we actually done Co- together? What has been co-created? Yeah. What has been co-created? What has been the output of the collaboration? Yeah, yeah. That's what you mean. Yeah. So, so sometimes I, um, you know, um, of course we have lots of good collaborations where the, there's been great outcomes, basically. But I just have this nagging feeling that perhaps we should be even better, even better at delivering stuff from these collaborations and not just. So one output of ASBN is, um, I guess, the Nokia metaphor, connecting people. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But they also do some other stuff like... Um, That's the Hypright connection. Hypright <laughs> yes. is trying to steal Nokia's uh, tagline. I think you should start using it and maybe your Hypright logo needs to change with a little bit of a Nokia style. I don't know. Right. The the event business is we, connecting people We are people actually nowadays. using it, but it cannot be official because then it's a legal problem. <laughs> oh, I see, I see. But Nokia isn't using that anymore, right? No, no, no. Should be. But, but you do a lot of other stuff in yeah. ISWIN as well, you know, yeah. Data Factory, HLab, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. Perhaps you, you can just quickly speak a bit about well, what are these initiatives and, and what are they trying to 
Help yeah, us. yeah. Uh, we, we can take a few of them, basically, because I think that, yeah, you mentioned Edge Lab and this collaboration around uh, moving AI to the edge and actually trying out things in practice on real hardware and stuff like that and see how it works, because it's becoming super obvious to large parts of industry that, I mean, they're, they're just going to have to do it, right? It, mm-hmm. they're, uh, the car companies are realizing that moving data from China, perhaps not going to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so this cross-silo, and but also these cross-device problems and so on, they're, they're going to be present, right? So we're going to have to do something there. So these things are really cool. But I, I think that the, the natural language processing and understanding yes. stuff is also something that is super important and that we get further on with in Sweden, not only because it's... Uh, I mean, it's critical to have Swedish language models, right, to actually build upon. And it's good Swedish language models that we can actually build stuff in the Swedish language. But uh, also the fact that a lot of the development that happens within AI right now is, I mean, at least partly connected to some things that are driven by language models and things like that. Uh, It's like we've seen, you know... When I worked in Peltori, you know, we could see so many companies said they had data, but in yeah. reality, when you try to ask them, exactly. ah, they didn't really have it. But yeah. text, they do. They do have that. And it's and super important. Yes. And it's, yeah. And wasn't that a, quite a big shift? Because for a long time, when we talked about deep learning, these very, very capable models and stuff like that, it was typically computer vision that was the yeah. uh, the space that you could really, really, really do something in. Mm. Tabular data and text, yeah, n- not, I mean... But I guess attention is all you need. Or <laughs> <laughs> moving to the transformer side. Yeah, I, I mean, it changed everything, right? It's, yeah, it is. It's, it's yeah. taking over the AI world. And, in and ways. leading yeah. question: When transformers goes beyond text to other areas, do you see it happening? Or we had robots. I John think we can here? see it happening right yeah. now. Uh, we sure. can see we can see transformers moving into uh, computer vision as well. Right? No, and, and because very concretely. New new opportunities, new deep tech with mm. transformers used in not text and and uh, vision, but for hardcore business use. Yeah, I think that when you understand the power of the transformer, the power of attention. Yeah, and then you start applying it, you realize how you can f- take that knowledge of how it works here, but apply it to a completely different problem. I think that will blow <laughs> the lid off that uh, the performance. Like that, that's what Robert is telling us. I, I truly believe it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Transformers is sort of bigger than we understand in terms of uh, it, it. It is a quantum leap in some ways, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I don't uh, know the yeah. stuff, so I, that's sure. why I'm Should asking. we go to that topic? I think it's a potentially a topic in itself. But yeah. The whole yeah. self-supervised uh, approach, I think. Yeah, absolutely critical, I think. The whole self-supervision part is absolutely But let's, let's park it because I, have, yes. I, have a, I, I, I want you to pitch me now from AI Sweden. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I'm putting a case in front of you. I'm sitting on some really cool tech and ideas around smart manufacturing and basically doing 5G uh, all the way into uh, to cloud. So, so basically sitting on a chain of thinking like, ooh, this is something we really want to test out or try yeah. out. Yeah. And I'm in the position where I'm, oh, we're going to do it ourselves. We get the, we have the 5G router from Sierra Wireless. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hook it up with some uh, Ericsson stuff and then yeah. I'm going to try it like this. Yeah. So why shouldn't I do it myself? And why should I, you know, how can I utilize AI Sweden's resources? Or how could I, because I'm not part of AI Sweden today, but maybe I should be. Yeah. No, I, I think that in all honesty, I think that's a decision that it, if you're a company and mm-hmm. you really want to protect something that you're doing and so on, yeah. 
perhaps we're not necessarily the venue to collaborate within then because there there needs to be a uh, for things to happen together for us to actually invest together because we don't we don't have that huge ai uh, research and application and innovation investments in sweden we have to sort of solve it ourselves so my pitch would basically be then so take a step back look at what what is business critical to what you're trying to do basically what is more basic problems that you could perhaps benefit by collaborating with other people for developing what's and your ip what is yeah. your competitive edge and yeah. what is more general purpose exactly mm-hmm. and then bring the general purpose stuff into ai sweden i can guarantee you that there are other people that are interested if you have the problems other people have the problems as well mm-hmm. And then work on it together, basically. You will gain resources. You will not have to build up all infrastructure, knowledge, and stuff like that again, basically. So I, I think I think that's sort of the, the basic pitch if you're a company that's thinking about trying to do something super specific, basically. Just take a step back. So what's, what is my core IP? What's your core IP? What needs to stay with you? What should you experiment with? together with other people other researchers and so on and so on to actually learn faster perfect answer but speaking about that because we, we've been saying so many times that Sweden is good in collaborating yep. and, and AI Sweden can be a coordinator and really making that happen potentially and, yeah. and you have you know human resources that can also know you know we have all these partners you know you should probably yeah. speak to that one yeah and that's good yeah but Still, if you take another example, you, you spoke about the NLP lab, for example, yeah, the yeah, Swedish yeah. language uh, models for Swedish mm, authorities mm. project yeah. that we have, um, and it, it's you know super important, of course, as you say, we need to be able to to understand and use AI for the Swedish text, the yeah, Swedish language, yeah. the best way can, and, and and that is you know. Obviously, very easy to understand and yes. really useful <laughs> thing. It's, it's an easy pitch. It's, yeah, I, I use it a lot because it's such an easy pitch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also in a product like that, you know, we have you know Rice part of it, yep. AS Sweden yep. part yep. of it, Atarian part of it, and, and a lot of authorities yeah. like yeah. Skatteverket yeah. and Arbetsmedlingen and others. Yeah, but mm. it's not easy to collaborate still within a product like this. No, it's not. And it's then not. we want to have the results coming from this project to be as accessible and yeah. useful as possible for other companies. Yeah, yeah. And what I'm thinking about now, just to, to explain what I am trying to, to get at, is, is you know how should we really make the results of a project like this available? Yeah, partly internally, but mainly externally. You know, when the product is finished, so yeah. we maximize the usefulness for it. Exactly, exactly. And, and this is part of a bigger discussion, I think, actually, yeah. because it's. Uh, um what we're what we're trying to solve now mm. when when we have this intention is basically saying that okay we want to go uh, we want to go beyond just publishing some code somewhere yes. at I github mean, you can't publish just the research paper i mean yeah, yeah. you can, and you could publish just the research paper but we want to go beyond that right yes you want to have an output you have we yeah. want to have value you want to have your yeah. library that we becomes a Swedish NLP. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and and, and it, it's more than that as well. I mean, we we talked about ImageNet before, right? So, but if we can develop benchmarks, those are super important. Yeah. They will drive everything much further, basically. So we need to share those as well. Yeah. Um, data sets, annotated data sets, all of that kind of stuff, best practices, and that's a huge challenge, right? And it's also. 
from the, let's say, storytelling side, I think that, I mean, research papers, it's great. I wouldn't say that most of the research papers within machine learning today is super difficult to read, but they're not super easy. And they don't provide a condensed version of what you need to know in many cases. So. You're coming to the use case factory here, even. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. That's one of the goals. But I mean, yeah. if you take, okay, let's say that we publish a research paper, like yeah. we did for federal learning yeah. Yeah, yeah. or something, and then Skonia wants to make use of it. Yeah. Yeah. Is the research paper sufficient for Skonia to start making use of it? Or no? I can say no, no. immediately. Yeah. Mm. And that's a problem, right? I mean, we've had this problem for such a long time with yeah. with uh, getting started with stuff. And uh, we still have it. I would say, I don't know what you think, Andreas, but I still think we had pretty big reproducibility problem. Yes, for sure. It's, you but, know. So even within the academia. Even within the academia. But what, and then what? even harder when it comes exactly. to... Exactly. Well, and w- applying it. Yes. Because... because when you develop a research paper, you have a different kind of focus, right? You're not thinking about a wide range of applications. You're thinking about making something work on a specific type of problem very, very well and so on. And not, and all yeah, this. yeah, yeah. So, so it's part of the mechanism. It's fine. Yeah. It's, you know, but uh, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very particular mechanism, basically. And it, the gaps from going just from a research paper just to reproduce it is difficult and then to, to apply, apply it. Yeah. It's a further step. And then it might not just be one paper. It might be many, many results that you might need to combine ideas from and things like that. And that here, I think, uh, our field is not great at putting together these these more, let's say, uh, distilled uh, views on uh, methodologies and technologies and algorithms and stuff like that. But let me put you... Two guys on the spot here. I think the NLP project within AI Sweden is one of the most useful, potentially easy selling pitches we have. I mean, mm-hmm. like in, in one way, it, I think it's the poster child because it's so clear. Yeah. It's easy yeah. to understand, right? But now I flip it and I ask you, what is the dream scenario output? What's the usefulness? What's the value? What, what are you aiming at ultimately? If, if 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 my wet dream came came about, we would have produced this. What is it? You want to start, or should I? You st- you start. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting you right into your love pet yeah. discussion. Yeah. But this is this is a great project. It's a great topic, but it's still difficult, right? But what can we get out of it? Yeah. What do you want? I mean, I think, you know, we can take the exact stakeholders that we have in the project, like yeah. Arvis Mellon and Skatteverket, and speak about the specific problems yeah. there. They're and really solve their problems. And, yeah, and that's, uh, I think it could be an inspiration for, you know, if they can do it. Uh, AI is such a GPT, a general purpose technology, mm, that, mm, you know, mm. if they can do it for this use case, it's surprisingly similar to so many other companies and organizations, yeah. not only in authorities, but also you know, throughout the sector or industry, I would say. So perhaps the easiest way to describe it is just to name a couple of very concrete examples, you know, what you can do with it. Yeah. And um, yeah, let's let's take Arvis Mjellin. I think that's everyone understand what they want to do. And, uh, you know, match, match, you know, the mm-hmm. seekers to the uh, providers of jobs. And you connect, you know, the job ads with the uh, resumes that you have. And of course, you need to understand very, you know, in detail, you know, what are the resumes saying? And if you don't understand a Swedish language, good luck with that. Then you have to do it manually. So taking, you know, and I think, you know, the thing that we don't want to do is 
perhaps completely automated, but rather to say, how can we have the humans not having to manually go through everything, you know, because you can't sit in real time to match every job ad to every resume all the time. Um, but you can have people helping out, trying to find, these are the top 100 recommendations, perhaps, you know, mm. if you sit as a person working in Aris mailing and they, they have a certain person in front of you and you want to help them find a job and they try to describe this is what they want to do. How do you find the job ads for that person? Well, you can either have all the knowledge in your head saying these are the companies that you have, or you have a smart AI system that understands Swedish language and say you simply type some query, some mm. kind of description of this is the type of job I want to have. And, and then you can find job ads, even though it doesn't match really word by word but it matched from a semantical point of view. That kind of tool would be awesome to have. So moving you know, to a more semantical understanding of the Swedish language and then putting that in the hand of the humans, I think it would be such an insane mm. improvement in or augmentation of human capabilities yeah. that we have. And, um, and you can say the same for you know, Skatteverket or someone that you know trying to get some kind of requests uh, from a legal point of view, perhaps, you know, is this okay for me as a company to do this and that? And they have to go through a huge amount of data from some legal database that they have. As a human, either you have everything in your knowledge, uh, in your head, uh, which very few have, but or you have a help with an AI system that can, you can type some kind of natural language question to it and it can basically recommend, here are potential answers to your question. And then you have suddenly a significantly augmented human yeah. mm -hmm. that can answer and handle you know, their mission and their tasks so much more efficiently that they never could without using AI. And how would you frame the output of, of Dream from this initiative? Well, if you take it from a, first of all, I completely agree with you. And I, I, I really also like the idea of a large part of AI is making actually computers and machines more human and human friendly. Exactly. Uh, it, it, it's not the picture that a lot of people have. Uh, you know that it's that there is that there are monolithic solitary devices that should make decisions for us and so on. A huge part of AI is making them more human. Yes. And more human understandable. Uh, which is something I think we should get better and better at explaining, basically, so that people can approach these things in the right way. But, but um, apart, from, apart from what you're saying, basically, I think also um, looking at the outcome as a national resource, basically. What, what can we bring out of this that we can then share again and again and again? Because that's sort of the mission that we have, basically. So what can we bring out from this? Now, now this is goosebumps moment yeah. properly for me, because this is a little bit like if I sit with these kind of questions in Scania, mm. some guy is going to nail me down and say, Henrik, what's the outcome of your initiative? What mm. is the deliverable that is tangible? when we are done and right. what this is going to cost me right yeah yeah so i i this resourcing what is that is is that i mean like papers and knowledge knowledge is resource to explain stuff yeah yeah absolutely but it could be it could be more right it could be a framework it could be a yes absolutely tensorflow shitload of this is the swedish model blah, yeah, blah, yeah. Blah. It, it can be a somewhat in this case a somewhat curated data set that we sort of trust uh -huh. and that uh -huh. we know uh, 
that we know at least part of the bias and all of that kind of stuff, that's super important as well. I mean, all data sets have bias, and as machine learners, we want bias in data because otherwise we don't have anything to learn, right? But yeah. uh, but, but learning from Alex, then, not all like, bias is bad. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you need to have some bias, otherwise yeah, it's useless. Exactly, otherwise it's just noise. And yes. it's, you know. <laughs> exactly. But this is important, right? Yeah. We said it, right? What yeah. was the inflection point that made yeah. it? Neural networks, but it was the AlexNet. What yeah. was it? It was a huge data set. It yeah. was benchmarks. Yes. It was several yes. things that made it exactly. into a reusable exactly. resource. Yes, yes. And um, we need to name all these things and share what we can here, basically. Mm-hmm. And I, I think under, uh, we can't show it here, of course, but you have a, you made a great slide here yeah. for the language project, basically, yes. which contains a lot of these things yeah. and lots of these potentially shareable things. And I think what's sort of striking, especially when you come from uh, research and so on um, a little bit more perhaps, is that the papers themselves are just a very small part of it, aren't they? Exactly. The rest of the resources are way more important to actually accelerate stuff, so. But you see, because I like the way you're framing a vision, Mm. and that is super important, super needed, but as someone said, a vision without execution is hallucination. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, have to, I haven't heard. That's another T-shirt. Uh, vision, you know. So yeah, I love yeah, the vision. Yeah, but what's one. the concrete output? What are you putting on the table? What resources library have you built? I th- I, and, and you know, having that without the vision is not as strong. But I think to also be really, really good in these projects, mm-hmm. and and this is something we can learn from business. Yeah. That you know what I'm not going to invest any money if you don't mm-hmm. show me the ROI. What's the ROI on your project? Yeah, yeah. But you so, you also have to be a little bit. Uh, I, I guess that you have to be a little bit open. I mean, you can in some of these projects that we run and that we've been part of, and especially applied research and stuff like that. You can sort of guess beforehand some of these things, but not all of them, right? Mm. Some of the learnings are a little bit surprising, like uh, learnings about best practices and how to handle legal stuff, which is becoming a huge issue right now, basically, right? It's more time-consuming than actually training the model itself. Exactly, exactly. But then that becomes another part of the resource. And so that also indicates this is a journey and an iterative uh, evolution of how you define the goal and the deliverables. But, But I think it's really healthy to have the vision Mm-hmm. But not hallucination, right? Yeah, so, yeah. what what does it lead us? What path does it lead us down to channel our focus, our investment, mm-hmm. our work? Absolutely, absolutely. Awesome. Let's try to close off the AI Sweden topic a bit. Um, yeah. And we've spoken a bit about what they do and try to connect people and provide resources and mm-hmm. about data sets and, and computational resources and yeah. you know, yeah. all these yeah. kind of things and having all these projects that you work. Yeah, with. yeah, yeah. What's the next step? What's the future? What's happening in coming years in AI Sweden? So basically now I would say uh, a couple of things are really, really occupying my mind right now. First first is uh, basically now we have a solid ground to stand on. We have a you know, good partner network. We bootstrap this super quickly and so on. Now we really regions. We have like six regions now. Yeah, six. six, uh, We're we're in six places, right? We're in south in Gothenburg, Örebro, which is uh, (laughs) you know um, that that region will also be wider. Uh, Stockholm and Norrland is little little tiny (laughs) (laughs) region uh, with a base based in Luleå and so on. So so we're. and Sweden is sort of all over Sweden right now and uh, with lots of partners and so on. So now we have a solid foundation, basically. Now, now it's up to, you know, how do we use it, basically. So um, so I think that 
basically how can we invest in some really strategic core things together where we, can we really come together and really work on research innovation together basically yeah, on an even larger scale can you exemplify what that could be i think a I couple of, i think a couple of things that are are coming together right now are the extension of the decentralized learning federated learning and edge ai i think this is going to be a huge topic for so many companies and so on and they're really showing that they're willing in you know investing in working together on this which is super fun basically and also the other thing that's really up and running and it's going to be at least we can see sort of how we're going to do it it's uh, this whole um yeah natural language processing the 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 text part which is of course very quickly moving into more multimodal aspects yes, and yeah, so exactly. on um so so i don't see i don't see nlp just nlp for the next two or three years even it's going to be multimodal really really soon right what do you make, mean what, yeah. what do we mean multimodal when you say it's more, not nlp so what it's not mean? just a, a model or a, a machine learning model or other kind of model that models text itself but it's in conjunction with for example sound and speech or video or images or something like that or tabular, tabular data or whatever basically and i think that's also one of these very very super big trends uh, that are happening right now right we're really yeah. truly going multimodal could could, could multimodal, you multi multitask multilingual exactly everything everything, but, everything. Uh, yes and federated at the same time it's going to be super easy yeah <laughs> but let's go back to let's nail down multimodal tabular you know i think this is some of the stuff where where we are doing stuff with nlp and it's moving out of its own text box so to speak mm -hmm. And it, this has so many uses, I, I believe. But could we use, for the ones who's not completely into the lingo and, and all that, and me included, what, what, what do we mean with tabular and multimodal? What, what is this? What, what, why are you like kids in a candy store when you mention those things? You're excited. You're excited, right? What is the use? Let me give a concrete uh, example yeah. then, uh, as well. And, and uh, one of the um, uh, use cases in the uh, language models uh, project is for Folktamboran, mm -hmm. the Swedish public uh, dental service, and they want to basically predict if you should prescribe antibiotics or not. And then you can use um, patient journal text, the the text that the medical doctor writes, you know, about each patient patient to try to decide. You know, should we prescribe antibiotics or not? And you may find, you know, sufficient information from the journal text itself saying, you know, you should prescribe it or not. But in some cases, it's not enough. In some cases, you need to know this is the age of the person. This is the gender of the person. This is the perhaps race or other things that you need to know about the person to, to make a better prediction of trying to understand if you should prescribe antibiotics or not. So that other type of data is basically tabular data. So if you combine, you know, the tabular data that you have with more unstructured data like text, then we have a multimodal approach that, that, that use both the unstructured text and also tabular data to have a more holistic understanding of, for example, the patient in this case, and make a better prediction because i i think i think that example is nailing it right for for the normal human beings who, is, who are not in the same world as you guys are on a daily basis we have our old data warehouses mm -hmm. and we have our numbers and we have that this is a bi right mm -hmm. and here we have something new fancy ai mm -hmm. 
and it's converging. Something yeah. is you, you the ultimate. But, but so don't say BI combined. BI is not tabular. Tabular and BI is two different things. I would say. Oh, but, but I was trying to simplify by saying we have we have we have structured data in a certain way, yeah. and we have unstructured or you know text yes. data and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so maybe that's a better word: structured yes. and unstructured data. Yeah. Even and, though some people working with text would be. A little bit annoyed <laughs> saying that oh, text sorry. is unstructured. There's a lot of structure in text. Yeah. <laughs> a linguist would be yeah. Yeah, a linguist would, would, would kill me. I, yeah. I get it. I get yeah. it. But I think I think that's so when we say multimodal mm-hmm. and especially with tabular, it's it's the convergence of this sort of data warehouse or sort of tabular it's not only number, it's not only warehouse. I mean uh, warehouse is usually connected to BI a lot as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to simplify, but maybe I'm yeah, but, taking yeah. it too far. But I, I yes. think I think I think yeah, I like the ideas of actually, you know, broadening the scope of where we can actually build useful applications and so on. Because as you said, sometimes there's not enough information in the text alone, not in the mm-hmm. tabular data alone, not in exactly. sound alone and stuff like that. But together, and if we actually can start working with them together, which is difficult by the way, mm-hmm. it's always been difficult. It opens up so many more new uh, potential, really, really cool applications uh, that we can work on. And not, I mean, uh, if, if you're if you're a bit more of an AI geek, of course, this is you know, understanding language in itself just from text is difficult. You you sometimes you would like to ground concepts using other kinds of data and so on. If you want a computer to interact with a person naturally, it's not just text, right? It's it's uh, it's phrasing, context. Uh, uh, now we're looking at each other here right now, right, and reading small cues and things like that. So language and. Co- let's call it communication then between humans is so much more than just text and one mode of communication. So, so it has huge implications, I think. Yeah, true. Uh, and now I understand why you are like kids in a candy store. Yeah. Multimodal is cool. Yeah. I mean, everything Super is going cool. that. Yes. If you see what, you know, Facebook is publishing these days and Google is also yeah. starting moving and, and so many yeah. others, it's going multimodal, multilingual, multitask. Yes. Like in having more and more generic models that you can train and it actually benefits because you can avoid these kind of problems if you have a lack of data in a certain, you know, for a certain task or a certain language or a certain type of modality. Yeah. By combining it, you overcome these kind of problems and you have... Yes. More generic, and I guess from a Lord of the Rings point of view, you have a single model to rule them all. Yeah, one model to rule them all. Yeah, (laughs) but I'm not sure I quite believe that yet. Yeah, sure. We're not there yet, for sure. But But, it's it's moving in that direction. There is a potential now to go into one direction of this conversation because what you're doing when you're starting combining the different things, are we moving more to AGI? I mean, (laughs) it's it's AGI. Is that too far leap? I mean, is this the, is this this the is baby, a, baby, baby, baby step? Uh, well, first of all, it's it's a difficult topic to talk about because yes. we have to talk a little bit about what is general intelligence. Then, yeah, uh, we, we are actually using the term in a number of different ways. Yeah. So, if you're talking about, for example, humans, which are often hailed as but the like, example let's, let's of say AGI, that we actually move to this topic. I think we should move to oh, AGI okay. a bit and, yeah, and sure. say that okay. That's the, um, that's the bridge then, right? Yes, yeah, it's a bridge now. So a human intelligence is not uh, super intelligence. We know that. No, <laughs> no human and human is not general. But okay, yeah. let's let's exactly. try to move into AGI yeah. a bit and uh, and think. You know, 
Yeah. Okay. How would you describe, you know, the movement to AGI? What does it mean? Is human level intelligence similar to general intelligence? Is the movement of multimodal, multilingual, multitask moving in that direction? Yeah. What's your thinking about AGI? Is it a yeah. super broad and, and sorry for yeah, the fluffy question? Yeah, let's just start somewhere. <laughs> let's see where we end up, basically. Yes, yeah, but, but, but yeah, I do think that, yes, these multimodal models and let's say a lot of the structures and principles that we basically, uh, the whole field has been working on for the last five or ten years and so on, I don't think anyone yet if, if, if can say how, how these would fit together to form a more general transferable intelligence. But I'm getting more and more confident that we're at least on track on finding some of the principles that can go into one of these machines, basically. We're sort of starting to understand so, some of these things that could potentially be part of this. And thing. that's all I meant, right? So yeah. when, we are, when we are cracking multimodal, it's one piece of a huge puzzle for AGI. Yeah, it is. I mean, I mean, and we should also say that, I mean, we can per perhaps build a more human-like intelligence, but um, as you said before as well, I mean, human intelligence is not super intelligence. And you can also discuss a little bit about how general is human intelligence, yeah, exactly. because we're very, very specifically tailored to what, how we observe and interact with the world, right? Yeah. And we're going to have to build and want to build intelligences for machines that see the world quite differently right so what is general intelligence and what is super yeah super intelligence is a different matter but it, you know it, it's a little bit of a different, different let's, let's have to define it a bit i mean super intelligence you know being able to be exactly. smarter for some specific tasks yeah. than a human yeah like playing chess or yeah multiplying two large numbers yeah <laughs> <laughs> we've been is you that know. if you're better than a human on a certain task is that super intelligence with super intelligence inferring a broad reasoning and stuff like that as well or can you be super intelligent and narrow in the definition i think super intelligence yeah uh, you can you can argue me on this but but for me super intelligence is simply you know better than a human for some task yeah. for, for a task yes. not not in general Yes. So, so, so super intelligence and narrow. Oh, sorry, general intelligence is mm. slightly going different, in different directions. Yes, it's different things. Yeah. Thanks. But, but I think I, um, I think a lot of people talk about more this um, super intelligence that move towards I don't know some some point where the systems can learn to build themselves better and better and reach this point of they can actually develop themselves and so on and become. I've heard kind. that definition as and well. Super intelligence. And that's a different path, basically. That's yeah. So, super intelligence in that context is when the when you will lose control, kind of uh, storyline. Is that what you're talking about, or like yeah. when they evolve themselves beyond what? That's you more singularity. That's, that's a more singularity. singularity thing. Okay, that's singularity. Not, that's singularity. Mm. I, and this is something that you know, if because it happens, people ask, when will that happen? It's <laughs> like you know. First of all, it's if I, I think it might be possible, but you know, but when? Yeah, we have no idea. We, yeah. we don't. We don't know the exact path, basically. So, okay, we, so, we so now, Daniel, you know, when will the singularity? What's happen? your number? What's <laughs> your number? We, we number asked, of years. <laughs> we have asked several. You know, we have a betting list going on, more or less. Is it, you know, put put the number down for singularity? Yeah. Wow, <laughs> impossible. That's impossible. <laughs> no, but, Absolutely but we, impossible. we we will not leave the question until we get a number, uh, okay. and it can be five hundred years, no, thousand years. Uh, yeah, I'm joking. In I'm joking. in in one hundred and fifty years. Yeah, one fifty. What really? Mm. 
What is your number, Anders? Right nine now? years. Nine years. Mm. You say nine years right now. So oh. Ray, Ray Kirchfeld says yes. nine years, or yeah. even eight. And you, and you, yeah, you uh, love him. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah. He's been right, you know, so many times before. But uh, it depends a bit yeah. how you define singularity. It's I mean, fi- yeah, it's it's exactly. It's like, it's like, it's the chicken and the egg, right? Because yeah. we first need to get the definition right, and yeah. then we can discuss it from, you know. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's fun, a little bit, though. Yeah, and if we're talking more about more, the, you know, singularity, yeah. I don't know. It's it's random. I I don't want to say 150 years either because it's such a it's such a you know when does an electronic component fail? It's mm. I don't know. It's yeah. you know it fails when it fails, right? I I don't see the way forward exactly, so I can't I can't tell. It could I be mean, three years. It could be 150. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I mean, so many people think that Terminator when I hear singularity, and, and yeah. I do not mean the Terminator will happen in nine years. <laughs> that's what he means. So, but you know, so many people are. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I think it. Yeah, and yes. I think the problem is a little bit like you know when people have been asking me and I about the timeline for more uh, general intelligence in some senses that yeah. we've been talking about, and it's like yeah, I can say uh, yeah in ten years or fifteen years. But I probably said that same thing ten or fifteen years ago. <laughs> so what does that mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's always it's, it's, it's always, always fifteen years ahead. It's always you know. Uh, so so what do we mean basically? Yeah. yeah. It's but it's a, fun. So yeah. we have a, it's, it's a bit of fun. Yeah. But no, I I I can't see a I can't see a route to a direct route to the singularity, which means I I yeah I I wouldn't be bet on anything basically. That's basically it. Okay, so if we speak more about you know the, the vision that uh, OpenAI and DeepMind and uh, probably some number of Chinese yeah. companies that we don't know, like Alibaba, Tencent, or Baidu, someone probably yeah. also have these kind of yeah. initiatives. Yeah. Um, do you think that's a worthwhile thing to put so much money that they do in? In a sense, yeah. You can discuss the approach mm. and whether or not that's sustainable or not basically i mean do we want to increase the parameter count and transformer models by 10 or 100 and yeah. you know how far how far can we get how you know but uh, because in some sense if you see what deepman and open ai and others are doing is basically scaling up the models exactly like a magnitude yeah 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 just make magnitude bigger all the time basically so how, how big is know. the biggest data set now I think that actually, yeah. the, I think the biggest is a Chinese company now. I think yeah. the biggest is Chinese. GPT three is not the biggest. No, 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 no. I think the Chinese stuff school. is, is, is one point seven billion trillion. Uh, sort of yeah, trillion, I, I, I think, think it's like, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 magnitudes larger. I yeah, think yeah. than yes. GPT three. Yeah, and GPT three was so, the biggest so when it came, right? I think it's one point seventy one or something. So it's, so it's literally ten times more. Then than it's GPT-3. ten times more. And how many? That's a lot. So someone screwed the Moore's law here somewhere. I mean, like this is in how much uh, time? In less than a year? Or in a year? Uh, I don't know. So, so I I don't know. GPT three maybe last year. Yeah, something yeah. like that. In one year, ten times. Yeah, but 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 you also we we also get to a point um, where we're catching up with how much we can do here because yeah. if GPT three was roughly three hundred GPU years or something like that, mm. I don't remember the exact guesses. Yeah, but but I mean, uh, I mean, if we're gonna do I have no idea what the convergence times were on these Chinese models and stuff like that. <laughs> and p- perhaps it's not 10 times as much uh, resources and so on. But but still, it's. I mean, we're pushing the boundaries pretty soon, right, with what is actually even reasonably feasible to, yeah. to run. 
And people, I, I think we should also be clear that uh, GPT-3 is not a practical use today. No. <laughs> right? No, it's not. <laughs> we have so much. We, we, at some points in this uh, podcast, we, we managed to get a GPT-3 joke in every time. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, it's yeah, always I mean, about me pushing him. But, but would you agree, Daniel, you know, because so many people are asking actually, yeah. you know, can't we simply use GPT-3 for our, you know, business use case that we have here? And, and I tried to explain, you know, there are 10 out of models that are so much smaller, yes, so much better. You yep. can find yep. your own data. Yep. It's so much better. And yeah, yeah. So right? it, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So GPT-3 is super cool. Mm. It's, it's really, really immensely 2. cool. 2.6. Yes. Yeah. Is that the one? What? Oh, I haven't heard about that. No, billion is nothing. Yeah, it should be trillion. It should be trillion. Yeah, this is not the one. Uh, I, uh, anyway, so. yeah. it's not a language model. I think it's a multimodal. That's thing. a multimodal model, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's still a transformer model. But, but yes. Yeah. You, you so I understand what we're talking about. When we say it's trillion, what it's been trained on? Yeah, what yeah. what is it? One seventy five. One seventy five yeah. trillion. Yeah. So exactly, it's, it's ten times lot. exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. to GPT three. Yeah. Exactly. That's 10 a times. lot. <laughs> so a lot. they went out to get ten times. And so what does that mean? So that they've been scraping the net for 10 times, you know, the model has been trained on 10 times more data. No, it's a number nah, of parameters a, in yeah. the model itself. Yeah. And, and since they've gone multimodal, and we, when you move to, to the vision side and using transformers on that, the parameter count might increase quite drastically, basically. And could you, exp what, what do we mean? What, what is the parameter? So number of neurons. I'm sorry to use that human term because it's not a proper neuron, but no. it's uh, yeah, a number of weights or what's the, the most understandable term to use? Um, number of number of artificial connections, but number of weights, I think, is a, uh, so. If you if you break it down yeah. and educate me, when you build a neural network, what is the parameter part of the of the network? Yeah. Oh. So the parameter part are the things that you change in the model when you look at data that you gradually change to achieve to get better and better at classifying or detect cats and dogs in an image or something like that so, so, so you put into you put something into a neural network it goes into uh, n i mean numbers like uh, the values of pixels or values mm -hmm. in a table or something like that then it goes through weights you know you you weigh each one of mm. these things with a certain amount multiply it with and so then, then you sum it up. with weights yeah the weights are the parameters yeah, the weights that's, are the so like you have you have classes and then yeah. i have weights yeah can you say it like that yeah your classes is the on the output side weights are basically how you part of the specification of the model basically so so it's an insane number of weights. Yeah, so it's yeah. easy to use the brain as an example because it's yeah. so easy to understand. I mean, yeah. you get some signal in your eye. Yeah. That signal hits a number of neuron. Uh, no? Yeah, neurons you have in your eye and it moves for, for forward in in the rest of the brain in the cortex etc and um, each of the time it actually causes some kind of spike or some kind of action to happen in that neuron. Mm -hmm. And um, the number of neurons that you have, you know, we have billions in the brain as well, not trillions, uh, but still, uh, it's a lot. That is basically the way to do computation, I guess, in the yeah. brain. And uh, we're trying to have a similar, but it's very, very different in in neural net, in artificial neural networks. Since yes. we use backprop, etc., which is not happening. That's in the brain. not happening <laughs> at all in the brain. <laughs> what's, what's backprop in this case? 
Oh, you uh, basically you basically take something on the let's say you you show a neural network and input an image or something yep. like that, and then through all these ways, through all these parameters, you propagate yes. these values. You yes. get to the end, and there you can see was I wrong or not, and how yeah. wrong was I, and then propagate this error back and try to assign how much each weight contributed to, to that error. error, and then you tune each parameter uh, just a little bit in the right direction to be better next time. And that's this back propagation part. And that's oh, really nicely yeah. described. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, but I, I think this is important, right? Because in some ways we, we're, we're all playing catch up with you guys and we, you are playing catch up with the Chinese guys, apparently. <laughs> uh, uh, we're not going to catch these Chinese guys. <laughs> not, not with any Swedish. But, but it, it, and I, I hope we don't build a Swedish so, GPT-3 or something. So n- now... Okay, well, why not? Well, if we were to do AGI in Sweden, yes, then we should do it. If mm. we want to use AI for practical use cases to help the industry, we should not do in Swedish You build a motor model, multi-model. Uh, you, you have other models like T5, etc., or so yeah. many other things that are MT5. much smaller and they are possible to fine-tune, they open source. You can tune it for different use cases. You can do it on a single GPU. You don't need thousands of GPUs to train it. It's feasible, possible, mm. practical, and even much more accurate than the EPT3 is. But, yeah, but and then GPT3 is, if you're going to build something on top of GPT3 and even use GPT3 to ask open-ended questions and so on for a specific application, it's very difficult to guarantee the results, right? How do you evaluate that? How do you how do you ensure what gets out? Yeah. It's super ver- it's super tricky to use. It's so, a super cool demo though. It is a super cool thing from an AGI point of view. Yes. It is. It's super cool. So we shouldn't under you know value the thing. No. But they shouldn't mistake it for being of you know commercial business use. So so narrow AI is easy. You can go much shorter the distance to commercial yes. value to do something which is narrow. very, very useful in a narrow space, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and quite often uh, and um, uh, you might uh, get upset with me for saying this, Anders, I don't know, but it's uh, quite often it's better to go quite a lot narrow as long as you get the results that you need because m- you might end up with something more robust, simpler to manage and stuff like I, that. I don't get angry and I think you should even go to like HDBoost and random yes. forests. Yes. And, yes. Or don't, don't worry about it. Don't, don't be... Yes. Uh, very, very good because that stuff usually works. Yes. Don't, don't be a snob. Don't <laughs> exactly. be a snob, right? Be super pragmatic of what yes. you need. And if you need, if you need, uh, if you need an accurate, uh, you know, a mean accuracy of 80% or something like that and you reach that with something super simple, just stop. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. You don't need to build anything else. I just had another idiotic question. It's trillions of parameters. What type of machine are we talking about? And it's not a single. It's thousands and thousands of machines. Are we talking yeah. about yeah. a lot of? That's yeah. a lot of machines. Yes. So, oh, yeah. what, what, could you imagine? Well, what is it? Is it like thousands or thousands of normal servers, GPUs? Or what GPUs, is it? GPUs, course, probably yeah. GPUs, because it's not. Yeah. It's not. I mean, some companies are starting to use more and more, like Google TPUs, yeah. and I think Amazon are developing something okay. in that direction, right? And what is a TPU compared to the so GPU? So it's it's a, it's very similar. So it, so a GPU is very very good at doing uh, parallel. Le, yeah parallel processing on math, so yeah. that you you have lots of lots of different ca- uh, numbers data, and it's very good at 
uh, doing additions on lots of those or multiplications on lots of those uh, mm-hmm. at the same time. But you can you can structure that kind of processor in a slightly different way, like Google has done with yeah. the TPUs and stuff. But it's basically the same thing. TPU is is a, is a subset of GPU. Could could no, you argue it's for it's more a, specialized? I mean, yeah. it specialized. only works for very very specific subset. operations yeah. that is specifically useful for deep learning. Yeah. GPU is actually a bit more general, and yeah. CPU is super general. Super general, but not as fast in this kind of very very. It, it's a particular kind of computation that you do for it, especially for neural networks, basically. And what does T this T stand for? Tensor, tensor processing units. Tensor. And uh, it's not. It's it's a race. It's it's a race of GPU. Uh, no, it's you're it's you're processing arrays, not necessarily tensors. This is a sort of pet peeve, but it's <laughs> but it's. And you know, Elon Musk, of course, has the, his own chip now, so he has yeah. the FSD thing, the full self driving chip. You know. So. Yeah. No, you lost me. What do you mean with chip? What, what are we talking about? So he threw out, he, he, in Tesla's before, they have NVIDIA GPUs. GPUs. And they threw it out and developed their own chip, chip. Yeah, yeah. instead I, of the I, GPU. But I, but I saw one of those, uh, he, he got one of the brainiest chip guys in the world to mm. work for him. He mm. came in like two or three years ago. I, I saw YouTube is beautiful. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, um, they were talking about building the, the AI chip for auto, um, automotive ground up. Mm. Is that a TPU now, or is it something else? Is in, in Tesla? Or? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, they, they have their own it's chip. It's, not it's a, a proprietary chip. It's the Google thing. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but but Tesla has a proprietary chip. Yeah, FSD chip. Yeah. FSD, right? That's the chip. What full self driving? Full. So it's auton. Yeah, it's for specifically full self self driving. So it's tuned concretely for the data problem of self driving cars. Yeah. But, you know, Elon does everything with the first principle mindset. Today, yeah, so he yeah, just yeah, threw yeah. everything out and does it himself. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are other companies like, yeah, FSD. doing similar stuff So FSD. So when we hear about FSD, well, that's the Tesla version. Yeah, for the ship. But Is he know, selling FSD. it to someone else? No. No. I don't think so. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know. It's uh, I, I guess it's nowadays a very super cool competitive advantage. I don't think Apple's gonna, are going to sell their super efficient M1 chips to anyone else, right? It's you know probably it's, not. It's, probably not. Yeah. And it's probably the same with the TPUs and the Amazon stuff and all of that. But, but Apple has already oh, quite long time done their own chips chipsets. Uh, right? Not processors at this scale. They moved to Intel for some time. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they moved to Intel, but then they've been Looking they've been back, bragging yeah. about their own chipset. I think the last couple of years, right? Anyway, Apple yeah. crap, uh, but Apple crapware thing. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have an Apple phone. Yeah, so yeah, 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 show your phone, show your phone. <laughs> show your phone <laughs> you know, we've had this Apple versus uh, yeah, not. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let, now let's go to more serious topics, I think. Yeah. Yes. And um, we've been speaking quite a lot about parallel learning and decentralized mm, AI yeah. and things like that. And um, and I may go a bit against you now, Daniel, but, mm. but please. Um, Try to describe a bit, you know, what's the potential with federated or more generally decentralized AI? I think right now, at least, the the most urgent need is basically that it's difficult to get all necessary data in one point. And it's for legal reasons, it's partly for transport reasons and things like that. But that's, I think, the main driver at the moment, basically. And uh, uh, are we going to end up in a situation where uh, everything is uh, 
federated learning and uh, dis- distributed uh, algorithms and decentralized AI and stuff like that? No, probably not. But I think it's probably going to be a quite a bit of a core component of a lot of stuff that uh, at least larger enterprise companies build and do, mm-hmm. basically. If you're operating in lots of legal systems, if you're operating in lots of devices, if you're building lots of base stations or something, and like I guess that. it's easy to describe, like Scania, for example. Yeah. You know, they have you know the trucks, and yeah. of course they can't send all the data you know to a central yeah. location and need so to. It's, yeah, and I guess that's an, a potential good example of why you potentially need exactly it. you could use it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Both from a bandwidth point of view, you don't want to send all the data yeah. all the time, and also yeah. from a privacy point of view, yeah. potentially that. Although we should be clear that it doesn't solve all the potential privacy problems necessarily. Yeah. So because it's I, I may stab down now on this front. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But but it it you yeah. can easily understand it's. Yeah. Um, it you can understand really the drivers. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can understand the drivers for it, basically. Yeah. And it's uh, drivers from a yeah but, point not, of view. <laughs> but, but I I've been in two different industries now. Yep. I'm having the fortune of being what I think is a par- being part of a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. First, in the energy industry, uh, where you go from a very linear value chain from production, you know, to trading to yeah. networks, yeah. all this. And we, we talked about the three fundamental Ds, mm-hmm. decentralization, yeah. uh, decarbonization, mm-hmm. digitalization. Right. And essentially the paradigm is that the- Digitalization? Ed- what? Did it, digitalization, well, that's our favorite <laughs> discussion. We, we just have this kind of argument all the time. Digitalization <laughs> versus digitization. Yeah, we, let's we not go but, there. Yeah. Let's okay. go analog. But, I think that's <laughs> but the, the core topic is that when you, when you look at the future energy system because of renewables and because we become mm-hmm. prosumers, you're essentially to, uh, discussing a network ecosystem. Yeah. So, so, so the energy uh, value chain mm-hmm. linear becomes an ecosystem. Now I've been in Scania. Mm -hmm. Scania is understanding one of the core topics, how to reposition yourself from a truck manufacturer to be, to what is your position in a transport ecosystem? Right. Are we, are we going to sell trucks in the future? Are we going to sell transport optimization? Yeah. Autonomous vehicles, electrification, Mm -hmm. and then a shitload of data and AI to optimize the the whole system. Right. So all of a sudden now you are not, in a proprietary system where you are in control anymore. No. You're, you are a participant in an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And for that ecosystem to be optimized, algorithms needs to look at things holistically. And you need to then go back to the core topic, what is your core IP? Yeah. And was it its general purpose? In, in, in energy, I think this is the best example to understand. I had this data problem when I was, an, you know, we have what is called network data, right? Yep. And basically it is NSI class information, national security information. Mm-hmm. I have two, I have, I have, uh, you know, two tables in the same system. This table I have to share with the regulator. Right. This table is private. Mm-hmm. GDPR. Yeah. So basically the way we have built systems and we have tried to class the system, should I be, should it be shareable data or should it be locked down data, mm-hmm. nuclear power plants all, all the way down to, you know, terminal server data. Yeah. We have a fundamental shift in application centric to data centric and from data centric, distributed data centric. Yeah. And I think that's, I don't think there's a turning back on that. So edge intelligence versus central intelligence, whatever you want to call it, and and uh, 
That is one core use case, but the ecosystem as such, I can I can define it in fintech finance. I can define it in water, intelligent yeah. water. I can define it in sustainable cities. I can t- define it in networks. I can define it, you know, in transport and energy. So very fundamental big industries that needs to go in this direction. And by the way, I think the health and public sector has the same problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think distributed, whether we like it or not, is part of the core. Um, but distributed is different from decentralized, I would argue. Yeah, then, no, yeah. Let's, let, this is interesting because- And it's great that we as computer scientists don't really have clear definitions of what these mm. things mean. <laughs> <laughs> so we can, argue exactly about right. the, we can argue about them constantly. What, what, was I talking about decentralized <laughs> or distributed, yeah. in your opinion? I, because I, I don't really know how to use those two words, to be honest. Yeah. Well. Yeah, uh, I speak too much today, I think, but it's just because it's so interesting <laughs> yeah. topics. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, but but we've spoken about this before, you know, decentralized versus dis- uh, distributed. So in, at least in the machine learning point of view, distributed means basically you distribute the training in different machines yes. and decentralized you actually move the model to uh, where the data is instead. So on a technical a point of view, you can make this distinction quite clear because yes. If I move away from the machine learning part and then I move into cloud computing mm-hmm. and we talk about the data mesh. Have you heard about the concepts of this? But, but okay, let, let's start to close because we, I think we're going a bit down yeah, the rabbit hole. I'm, I'm just trying to say that distributed and decentralized is is used differently depending on which field you're in. Yeah, sure. Yeah, they they are. Are. But in, in distributed, you usually centralize the data first and then you distribute. In decentralized, yeah. you never centralized. Yeah. You just, you know, train it in each client stuff. Yeah. So it's a big difference from a machine learning point. Yeah. But the, yes. the point I was trying to make, of course I agree, in, you know, we've been working and I've been working yeah, yeah. with Federated Learning for a long time in yeah. with AI Sweden, and yeah. both in Medbert and the Federated Learning exactly. project and so forth. And it's been up on the radar and I've been working with Ericsson for with this kind of topics for yeah. a huge amount of time, basically. Yeah. It's just yeah. that now it's mm. much higher on the agenda, basically. Yeah. My potential argument uh, here is that there is a middle point between centralized and decentralized. And and what I mean with that, if you take, uh, for example, medical use case, Folktamboren or mm-hmm. hospitals, yeah. Region Halland and the different regions we have, they usually can, you know, if you take the, the pure decentralized learning, it's like the, the, the tracks, for example, they yeah. are clear, very easy to understand problem. They can't send the data, they need to do it yeah. in a decentralized way and and with mobile phones of course you don't want from a bandwidth point of view and certainly not from a privacy point of view to send all the data you're typing in on the keyboard Mm -hmm. it's very easy to understand and you need to have proper federated learning in place to make that work yeah but i would argue and i would like to hear what you think about this daniel that so many other use cases actually can have some kind of compromise between the two and, and if you take Folktamboren, for example, they have no problem to move the data, extract the data, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. move it to a central location inside the organization, right? and then train and, and work with the data yeah. centrally inside the organization. Yeah. And that, I would argue, is not very learning. No, not necessarily, no. Yeah. And, and 
it seems sometimes that it it becomes a bit of hype, actually. Sure, of where course. You say that everyone should use credit learning, or not you necessarily, but no. the rest of the world. Uh, and trust me, I, I'm not I'm I'm not going to say that everyone should use federated learning because if it, if it's possible to centralize data, mm. you shouldn't use federated learning. Yeah. That's basically it, right? It's yeah. you know it's much easier to actually if you can and it's cost efficient and you don't break any. Um, um, yes, sort of difficult integrity issues or legal issues or something yeah. like that, it's always be easier to have everything at one place and make everything work, right? Yeah, yeah. It's so yeah. much easier. Yeah, Both from an orchestration point of view, yeah. but also from a training performance point exactly. of view. Exactly, you're so. going to get better results, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. easier. Yeah, to, to way easier, way easier. Yeah. Good. Okay. But now I'm happy. Yes. So, <laughs> but, but I think this th- this question is super interesting, right? Because where are the... In- where are the interesting middle grounds and how do you build them and yeah. how do you orchestrate them in really, really complex scenarios and yeah. stuff like that? That's super, super interesting, actually. Yeah. And, you know, and if we're talking about integrity challenges and so on, so how much can you centralize before it becomes a problem and mm. stuff like that, basically. But but here, I think we can go to Scania. Or, or, mm. and, and I think the master of all masters, when it, we talk about the edge the, the vertical uh, the data value chain from the edge to central, I, I think yeah. it's still Tesla, right? Right. So they, they have built the, the most insane data stack from the car, mm-hmm. you know, how they collect so much sensor data. Yeah. But then, of course, they are sending all that down data centrally to to tune the model to improve the model. Not all. They have a really no. smart way to select the data. I mean, like, I mean, like, but, this is, but what they have done here, I think, is, you know, because in, in Scania, of course, we talk about over-the-air you know, uh, updates. Yeah. And it's f- complex. Yeah. It is difficult yeah. to do well. Yeah. But but I, I think you have a point here. If you're, wor- uh, if you're working with, for example, non-integrity sensitive data and things like that, that oh, part of... Te- part, yeah, sensor data or something like that. Uh, should you do all learning at the edge or um, federated learning and so on. No, there might be a better way. There might be a better way of collecting something, build a model, distribute that. And then send the model back. And do some kind of variance, I don't know, variance of active learning and so on. And letting mm-hmm. the, models, the models locally say that this looks like a unsure data point. I'll send this back yeah. and stuff like that. There are so many other approaches that you can use to actually reduce the number of data points you need to send and so on. Edge active learning, that should be the AI Sweden, I think. Yeah. That would be awesome, yeah. I think. Yeah. But, but there is actually a reason that we called it decentralized and so on, not federated, because we didn't want it to become just federated learning. Awesome. We need we need to include all of these approaches yes. basically. Otherwise, we're locking ourselves into something that might not and, really and work for us. And you're nailing it because you're you're basically clarifying. We need to explore several different core scenarios. Here. Yeah, yeah. And there are at least there are several of them, but maybe you we can find generic design patterns that are more suitable for different ones. And exactly. that is a huge step forward yeah. for something that is blurry today. Yeah, and, and it's sort of also interesting and kind of fun that there, there's never going to be just one way of doing things, right? And it's uh, for different applications, we're going to have different kinds of solutions, but we're going to have design patterns, better methods, and stuff like that. But of course, when you're moving towards, for example, federated learning and things like that, it's quite, I mean, we're getting a little bit used to having decently mature tools in TensorFlow and PyTorch and stuff like that. And yeah. all of that, ah, sort of, sort of, they're getting better. But, <laughs> yes. but, 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 but you're sort of taking a step back when you're 
yeah. getting into the federated space and True. stuff like that. And all True. of a sudden, it feels like taking five or ten years, uh, you know, step back in terms of uh, framework and tool maturity. And but what, what we have realized when we discuss things about IoT or edge intelligence, yeah. there's been a lot of focus on IoT to collect data, and it goes one way, and then we do something, then we can have insights here. But I think... What is really the expo- uh, explosion with, with 5G and having edge intelligence mm-hmm. is that you're collecting data maybe to, to find a model, but then in the end you want the data back in order to steer or upgrade, you know, send out the next patch, yeah. you know, yeah. over the air. And I think over the air type thinking is everywhere with 5G. It's in the smart manufacturing mm-hmm. setup. And, and the holy grail is not to send data centrally. The holy grail is to really steer it and improve the whole system. Yeah. I mean, like, so yeah. you can basically upgrade the machinery you have. I mean, like the Teslas, they get upgraded all the time. That will happen to tooling and machinery in the factory mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. I promise. Cool. We only have like 10 minutes left. Yep. And uh, I'd like to move to more like societal, long-term, philosophical kind of topics. Right. Um, and uh, please fill in. But let me start with something. And, and you know, we're both from a more academic, like research mm. background point yeah. of view. And I am personally a bit concerned with the recent progress, especially in academic AI research. Yeah. And for one, the one concern potentially is the tech giants is just moving so fast ahead yeah. that the normal universities is not keeping up. Yeah. The second thing is that the whole, you know, publishing to journals and conferences is also being potentially superseded by just doing preprints to archi- yes. archive. Yes. Would you agree with this? Or what's your thinking about, you know, ha- no. what will happen in coming years when it comes to AI research and perhaps in general research? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, this is a super good point. And it's sort of something that I would say we're all struggling with this right now, right? There is so much, and part of it is scale, I guess, because right now, compared to just uh, 15 years ago or something like that within this these fields, the output is just so much immensely bigger. Yeah. So it's so much more difficult to follow and so on. And some of these conferences and so on that we used to go to mm. have grown massively, yeah. basically. So it's very difficult to keep track of what ev- where everything is. And yeah, there is a little bit of this... Uh, uh, publishing on archive, which I think is a good idea to start with. I mean, distributing your results and so on. But there is a little bit of this, oh, we did this first. Let's get this out here. Yeah. And just, you know, not necessarily with... Uh, What's the peer? Yeah, there's not necessarily peer review, but uh, perhaps not. that's not necessarily the, the main problem sometimes. But it's the it's the rigor, it's the mission, it's the scope of what you put out, basically. How How well thought out are these things it's you know we had tons and tons of papers but uh, i would like to have more of i don't know shannon's 1948 paper on information theory or something like that he took some time to write that but it's very consistent it's coherent it's a big result it's very worked through so Mm. to speak and now were you spitting out is I mean, it's it also spe- like it these kind of, of you know, universities have these kind of strong goals and you have to publish these papers. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. exactly. When you have these kind of conferences, they, they actually try to find these uh, conglom- con- conglomerates or, or yeah. this kind of weird, 
you know, if you review my paper, I review yours and yeah. approve it, and they yeah. like set up these kind of rings where cartel you can, yeah. is called. Yeah, cartels. Yeah, more yeah, or less, yeah I guess it, it is. It's a little bit, and I, I mean, part of the system is gaming the system, right? So yeah. if you can, gaming the system. So if you can, for example, build your uh, academic reputation by, you know, if you sort of part create part of your own field and your community and you review and publish and you know together yeah. of course it's it's super i mean the academic cartels you heard it here first no yeah. it's, not, it's, it's not, not first. i'm joking yeah. <laughs> no, but, uh, and it's, yeah what do, what do you think it done more long term i mean will this improve will we change the way we do academic research because we, i guess we still need it i mean it, it would be we definitely need it right? but but, yeah. but uh, I, i'm I don't know. I think we need to do a few more things, basically, on a very basic level from academia as well. And that's basically, at least from parts of Swedish perspective and so on, broaden the broaden the notion of academic impact mm. um, beyond papers. I mean, right, right. Uh, uh, why shouldn't uh, if you if you write something open source code that's used? everywhere in the world why shouldn't mm. that count against your so not having it just record. a paper but also a data set or yeah, a data code, set or a code, code and stuff like that yeah. and sort of people are sort of trying to fix it today mm. that if you publish a data set you write a paper mm. about it that you can get citations from and so, so on but the whole thing gets a little bit you know so maybe maybe there's a redirection of focus and attention and importance and value yeah. to actually the, the useful result, which is the data set, sometimes even... I mean, sometimes like the, paper. the data set, sometimes the code, sometimes the benchmark, and sort of, <coughs> you, t- you typically use a sort of paper proxy and stuff like that for these things to get something to count. But it's, uh, I think... Have we narrowed down too far that it's only the paper and the published paper that counts? Have we taken yeah. that too far? Yeah, potentially. I mean, there was a big... If you know this uh, Siraj uh, person on, on YouTube... Have you heard about Siraj? No, I don't think no, no. I don't think so. He was really big in YouTube and did a lot of machine learning podcasts and yeah. videos. And now, just in recent weeks, he basically plagiarized two papers and published oh. it. And he only changed, you know, some few words. It was so easy to detect yeah. it was plagiarized. Yeah. Yeah. He, he did, did like search and replace on... He had some terms like logical gates and things like that. Right. So he changed gate to door. So it was logical doors. <laughs> and it, it made no sense <laughs> right. at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. As Jesus Christ. And, and it yeah, completely destroys his credibility. And yep. But it's because his the pressure of being able to publish and you do whatever you can to just make it work. And yeah, <sighs> yeah, yeah. it's sad. Yeah. And, and there, there are definitely... Uh, we talked about reproducibility earlier yeah. and stuff like that. And of course, I mean, there's a large push on actually having very good results and state of the art results. So you do what you do, what you need to do to get those to yeah. get published and things like that. But yeah. then it might again be difficult to reproduce it. And uh, I, I don't know. Uh, sometimes I feel like this push for, you know, state of the art results, having the bold faced number right. in a table Right. It's taking the it's, it's taking things a little bit too far because it's you know it might not be super interesting. Yeah, you pushed the boundary a little bit in these numbers that might not actually mean yeah. all that much. We've had this conversation so much, and it's a little yeah. bit like what is the usefulness of of uh, pushing a benchmark versus coming up with something novel? Yeah, but, exactly. but it's a little bit like the whole industry, the whole. Uh, machinery is yeah. set in a certain way now. Uh, yeah. So if if you want to game the machine, 
that's what you do. Yeah, yeah, to a large degree, I think that's true, actually. So that's okay, but but what are, what are the underlying symptoms and root causes that what should we work on to make this more useful? What could you could we is it easy to pinpoint? I'm I'm not sure it's so easy to pinpoint what to. But I, it's it's a systemic approach. Yeah, I mean it's a, I mean it's a, it's a sort of a systemic issue. So how do you how do you yeah. fix it? Basically, it's not it's not super easy, and it's not. We don't need to fix everything, but some things are not working as well as they should by now. But I if if, if we if we want a parameter tune this, wh- yeah. which parameters do we want to tune? I don't know. Then basically, I, I, I certainly have no idea either. I don't know. No. Something that could be tuned is basically the incentive structure, I ah, guess, mm. for research. The metrics. The metrics is usually a good uh, idea to start uh, with. Uh, your it's a Jeremy Howard thing, you know. Yeah. The, I mean, you know, the getting funding and, and Jeremy Howard, you know, yeah. is the president of, of the yeah, previous Kaggle and now Fast AI. And he basically said, you know, this quote of uh, most research and deep learning is a complete waste of time. Yeah, you <laughs> love to re- say that. And, and, I, I, refer- I, and I don't disagree necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's basically he's referring to what you just said. Yeah. You know, just pushing one, you know, yeah. 0.1% exactly. point on some data sets. And it's it not makes really. Sense. Yeah. Makes there are sense. so many other research questions yes. you should focus on to really exactly. make use of data to make exactly. it actually of beneficial value for society in some way or for companies. Yes. But it's a systemic problem why this is getting published and this is not getting published. Yeah, to a degree, yeah. And um, basically it comes down to incentives and why do people publish and but, uh, things uh, like uh, that. And I, I read a funny, like a, like a Medium article, which is basically the headline is, if Einstein would have published his theory uh, today, he would never been published because it's it doesn't fit the mold, you know. Have you have, did you see that? I think there was a fight, quite interesting um, argument in this whole debate that the way you know he he yeah. had a he had a prose he had a story he had something else right, but it doesn't at all fit into the game gamification of being published. No, but I think that's part of the mature also part of again. Um, lots of different areas of research have quite different ways of expressing themselves and how you formulate things and stuff like that. So it looks quite different in different areas. But uh, it's a matter of efficiency, right? Now, when you read a paper with a machine learning and so on, it's structured in exactly the same way as every other paper. Uh, there's no, f- at, lost, at least not much flowery language and, you know, stuff like that. It's it's very to the point. And, uh, Is that good so or do we miss it's very efficient. 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 It's efficient. It's efficient. efficient when you read the papers. It's efficient when you review the papers. It's partly re- efficient when you're writing the papers and so on because everyone works to format, right? Yeah, you template. Yeah. So, so and that's also, it's efficiency. And we just have a few minutes here, but yeah. I think we potentially could end a bit like we started, which yeah. was a bit about the pandemic, about the restart, restart or rebooting funding that right, we can right, get right. and these sure. kind of things. And I Absolutely. think you said a number of really interesting stuff there. And thinking about that, you know, we have the pandemic and it's had a user effect on, on you know, society at large, um, yeah. economical impact, you know, for so many companies. And, yeah. and now EU potentially is putting out a lot of funding. Yeah, this restarts you, funding and things like can, that. Can you just describe that a bit, you know, what is happening right now and what's potentially is a concern with that? Right. So, yeah, I'm not an expert in this area at all, basically, but there is restart funding coming from from uh, EU to reboot the economies, I guess, in, in member states and so on. I think there's um, at least partly um, uh, uh, a goal of 
making sure that this can drive transformation of uh, industries and towards is digitalization. That a goal or is it just rebooting in the way we did it before? I think I think it's I think that some of the goals are to actually drive transformation, okay. which I think is interesting. Yeah, and again, I should, um, I'm not an expert on this area, but I think it's at least interesting. But in any case, I think we should definitely try to see these funds now as a way of driving transformation, right? Mm. Because now we actually have some funding and things like that, investments, and this is happening in companies too, when they're rebooting their their um, business and so on, there's all of a sudden a feeling, at least from uh, the outside sometimes, that there's a, there's a lot of money in the system at the moment. Yeah. So let's use that to drive this AI transformation, for example, and to bet on a little bit more uh, forward-looking mm. technologies and methods and so on. I think that we have the chance now. It's the risk is not huge. Yeah. Something good will come out of it, basically. So let's yeah. push for that. So I, and I, I really would like this Sweden to really, you know, push for something really transformative. Push for AI. Push for quantum computing, if you like. It's not my thing, but you know, push for yeah, something. To destroy it at the same. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry. No, no. no. <laughs> but is it the same for all the countries in EU? Or it's uh, mostly from Sweden. That, where the money is spent? Or no, so. so the EU is uh, providing probably the same funding across, is distributing the funding across mm, the, yeah. the, the countries, right? Yeah. So when we're discussing about uh, the small percentage given to AI, are we discussing only the Swedish? Uh, yeah, now we're talking about, uh, I, I, um, I only have any yeah, insight yeah, into okay. the, the Swedish system. Yeah. And, yeah. But but, but the, t- the topic is a little bit like, when you're putting a reboot money on the table, yeah. where, where, where can we channel it that makes a good impact? Yeah. And it would be very much, I think it would be fun and interesting and the right timing to put it towards AI and so on. Well, now when we're a little bit behind in AI investments in Sweden and so on, can we use this now to actually put this... So should we even condition push? the money on saying that you should transform it in some way? Or is I think that would be nice. I think it would be nice to have some larger initiatives around a specifically AI and specific technologies and things like that to actually push us a little bit further and push us to actually invest in these things specifically because there has been a little bit of a lack of investment in Sweden in this area but but I I, I that triggers me uh, who was we, we did a we did at early stage of the pandemic uh, Goran put together a roundtable with with experts around mm-hmm. viewing um, the uh, you know is the, the core question was is the uh, corona or covid a, a black swan event and and actually can you come out ahead of the game so the whole mm-hmm. conversation was a little bit like could we have predicted it and actually now we are seeing things breaking that is clear what we need to fix mm-hmm. so we we now have a more even clearer view of how we need to build resilient system as an example yeah, yeah. and then we are highlighted that well actually we we could name example after example of how things truly accelerated when you had a common goal mm-hmm. and a common you know absolutely purpose. Absolutely. You know, with, with the vaccine, and I, I could drive examples from um, Scania, like we, we call it the golden arrow in Scania, mm-hmm. that basically when we needed to get data, we needed to get understanding of something from the top management. We had a golden arrow, we call it. Mm-hmm. Golden arrow is it's, it's a known, um, uh, and it means drop, fix. And we had tremendous speed and fantastic results in terms of getting to what insight or data mm. or what it 
we needed to do in order to better understand what is happening to production, what is happening to supply, mm-hmm. stuff like mm-hmm. this, right? But it proved clearly the speed we can move with was tremendous when you work in a different way. Yeah. So I think this type of funding is not only about then, I would be sad if it goes all into broadband, you know, yeah. or something very yeah. infrastructure. Or something very basic, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. My, sure. uh, so we had like a yeah. discussion about this last uh, week on a podcast, right? And uh, the, the question is actually, did, uh, did organizations, industries, and countries learn something? Exactly. Are they, uh, they, did they just basically adopt it? And now because, you know, it seems like it's going to go away, they are they going to go, back. go, yeah. Or actually they started uh, changing. So uh, they, did they adopt it? Or learn. Or learn, mm. or, or changed. Changed is a very important thing because. And unfortunately, yeah. less change than we think. And and this this basically what you are mentioning right now is just uh, eye-opening that we are going back to the old roots. Mm-hmm. And that is very discouraging, especially after uh, making like a very big framework about AI, where they say, I mean, the whole, the whole thing was to show that like we have AI, you know, mm-hmm. we look at it and it's good and we want to invest in it. So that was the positive thing of the entire framework. And now to go back and not dedicate the money to AI, and instead of that going to the digitalization or infrastructure, mm-hmm. we don't need this. Sweden is already the most digitalized c- country in the world. Uh, we need AI. No, but uh, I, I need to come back to what uh, you said before mm-hmm. the podcast started, which I yeah. thought was brilliant. Uh, the reason why we should now make this transformative investment with an AI-first mindset Yeah is simply because it drives the core business questions first and based on what, you know, because the AI is closer to what optimization we want. Mm-hmm. And then we realize what infrastructure we need in, in order to fuel that. So the yeah. problem when you pour money into pure infrastructure, there is no direction in the same way what to use it for. Yeah. So simply by having an AI first mindset, you channel the infrastructure investment in a better way. Exactly. I thought that was profound. You, 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 pro- you provide purpose and direction. Purpose and direction yeah. come from the AI question, exactly. not from the infrastructure question. Yes, yes. So, exactly. So I have a question, and I think it's a good closing question before okay. we go with this. So what can we do to change the politicians and EU and everybody else to look at it? Because the industry is ready. You yeah, obviously the industry is ready. We are ready. The research uh, is ready. So what can we do for them to change their mind? Because obviously some countries are already running it, running, uh, you know, fast. And we are just uh, looking at how time passed by. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, what can if, we do? If, if I can speculate just a little bit, I think a part of it is actually to realize that uh, from, uh, from politics and from broader citizens and so on is that AI and automation and these things, these are not necessarily technical questions on a societal level. And just saying that, you know, we're going to invest in AI and so on. Yeah, everyone can do that. But in the end, when we decide how and when to use these tools, what do we automate? With what purpose? With what target? And so on then it essentially becomes politics, mm. right? How exactly. do we prioritize yes. and so on? It's not like we're trying to build something actually completely des- necessarily different in many instances and so on. We have lots of bureaucratic processes and things like that that we have built based on political decisions, principles and things like that. 
These are getting back to us now when we're building larger AI systems. What are we going to use them for? How are they going to make their decisions? How are they going to prioritize and things like that? Who gets healthcare? Who get who does not get healthcare in an automated system? This is a political decision, not a. It is. But should you really say automate them? I mean, so I, defining perhaps it could be you know what should really augment humans to do? Yeah, well, exactly. Right? And it's you know and w- what should it help humans provide and things yeah. like that? Mm. Because it, it's it doesn't matter if it's I mean. Again, if you go back to a very old quote, basically, you know, it's, it doesn't necessarily matter if it's a machine of uh, uh, flesh and blood that makes decisions and so on based on the wrong principles, What or if it's calling humans machines. Yeah, but I, I'm calling a bureaucracy machine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh yes. A bit. Uh, oh yes. Because it's oh, sort yes. of it's sort oh, of a yes. manual machine, right? Oh yes, it is. Uh, oh, and yes, it's operating it based on certain principles and things like that. And and it's and a machine it's, sometimes without yeah. an, an an owner. Yeah, mm. exactly. And it's sort of you know, uh, I think we have a chance now when we're actually going to put AI to help us make decisions, to help prioritize resources and things like that. Because now we're actually going to have to be very explicit about what we call cost functions and things like that. What is it that we're actually optimizing? This is what I like. It, it, it doesn't. It 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 it's not vague anymore. You have to be pretty darn specific when you build this. Narrow AI needs specific problems, problems to solve, yes. and then it forces you to articulate your exactly, question. exactly, exactly. Awesome. To to try to end this topic in a bit of a positive way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we potentially have, but still, <laughs> this was very positive. This was positive. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about how to change how things. To, we were on. talking about how to spend billions. We, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> now you interrupt me, but okay. <laughs> to try to close this topic <laughs> in a positive way, um, perhaps we could, as you say, make use of this restart funding or refunding yeah. yeah. in a way so we potentially could come out of the pandemic in an even more positive way exactly. than we actually came into it. Exactly. Do you think so? Yeah, I think so. And yeah. it's not necessarily, compared to other investments and so on, not a huge investment. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's relatively small and it's going to pay off. And we really need to make it. Yeah. Pay off both economically, but also societal point exactly. of view, medical point of view. Exactly. And so many exactly. Yeah. We just need to convince politicians and other decision makers to yeah to yeah yeah that, to, right? to put yeah. a billion uh, yes. crowns or something like that <laughs> like this direction absolutely awesome Daniel um, yeah. what's next in your life what's happening coming months personally privately professionally oh yeah I all of these things that we've been talking about building AI Sweden and so on I'm super interested in I'm super interested in developing some of these research topics and things like that uh, uh, further. But uh, in all honesty, I'm really looking forward to after a couple, if after a couple of more shots in the family of flu vaccine and so on, <laughs> to be able to actually travel to family in Portugal and things oh. like that. That it's you know this oh. this apart from everything else, big scale, small scale that we're doing. I, I want to travel. I, yeah, I want to travel and I want to see family again. Good, awesome. good, awesome. Do you have any potential recommendations? Who would you like us to put on the podcast that you would like to listen to? Oh, that's a very good question. I haven't thought about that. <laughs> yeah. 
who should we put on the podcast? Yeah, I guess you've had quite a few re- number of researchers and things like that. Mm. Um, Some politician. Maybe I, I'm, th- that's what I was thinking. Mm. Should we put, shouldn't we put a politician? Here? I, yeah, I would please, love to have a politician us, here. Help yeah. us, help mm. us. Yes, 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 yes. Mm. Yes. So uh, I... But the relevant politicians. Yes, who, who and, and someone who is interested in, and, and so on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That would so, be fantastic. Yes, so um, of, of course... Um, um, Perhaps Ibrahim Bailan or someone yeah. like that. Uh, uh, Mikael Damberg, who was yes. uh, the minis- uh, Minister of Industry before he, at least when uh, I met him and so on, he was super interested and very, very eager to know more and do more and so on. So uh, a politician could be fun, right? Bailan and yeah, Damberg. Yeah, I, I Bailan like and Damberg and I perhaps so. Anders Igeman mm, from Igeman. Infrastructure. I would like to have somebody from economic standpoint as well, because I believe in order for people to listen, we need to show them the numbers. Could the be, economics yeah. of AI. Yeah. Mm, the impact. Good. Perfect. Yeah. That sounds like great suggestions, I think. We, we should aim for that. But that will be after the summer then. Yeah. So we're taking yeah. a long summer break. Long summer break. But right. of course, okay. that means we will not rest. We will plan Yes. to make this more awesome coming back. Daniel, uh, always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, Likewise. You are so knowledgeable and I think communicative and being able to describe, you know, very complicated things in an easy to understand way, which is so important. Even uh, parameters. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And I wish you the the very best with AI Sweden, such an important initiative. And uh, we, yeah, you've already done so awesome work there. And uh, yeah, just keep up the good work. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Keep up the good work. Thanks for having me. It was great fun.